all things Ted Lasso. I am your host, Lee. I am here. I am joined by my co-host, Spencer. Spencer, how are you? Doing well, man. Excited to talk Ted Lasso. Um, Spencer, long episode. Have you finished it yet? You're still watching it? You're still caught in the middle? You lost? What's going on? It took three days. There were Sherpas involved. I got lost at one point as St. Bernard rescued me, but I eventually was able to make it to the end of this thing. We kid, we kid. It was a long episode, the longest episode ever of Ted Lasso. It was the only episode that stretched over an hour. By my count, there were about six different storylines going on at the same time. This is our Amsterdam episode. We got an Amsterdam episode of Ted Lasso. What did you think, Spencer? What did you think of the episode? Well, I'm of two minds of where there are times where I feel like the writers of the show are purposely making episodes for the sake of provoking me. Uh, in the sense that this was a really damn long episode. It had a lot of different plot lines. It most mirrored those kind of one-off, made-for-TV movie episodes that we talked about for last season, like Beard After Dark and the Christmas special, to the point that it even had the same kind of movie credits at the end of it. Uh, all of those are things that long-time listeners know I don't like as much. They tend to knock the episode lower for me. But I say all of that, and a lot of those were my views upon watching it the first time, on rewatch, though, I can't deny that it was charming. I can't deny that there were several of the plot line that it was. It didn't fall into the same role of those one-off episodes from last season where they had no purpose in terms of furthering the overarching plot. Almost every one of these plot lines had at least some connection in that regard in terms of furthering it. And taking them as they were, they were entertaining. So I've become more positive on the episode, even though it falls in many categories which institutionally I'm not as inclined to like, at least when it comes to this show. But I haven't heard a word from you, though, in texts or otherwise since the episode aired, about what you thought. I'm really curious. Would you? What were your opinions on this thing? I have purposely hidden that from you because you had very strong feelings about the length of the episode. I thought you'd come out Still high. do. You were a little bit more positive in that recap there than I thought you'd be. I thought you'd be kind of coming out hot for the episode. I'll tell you this. Probably my favorite episode of Ted Lasso they've ever done. I See, absolutely it, loved it. It's been fascinating to read the reviews online of how polarizing this episode has been. I have read as many saying this is an example of Ted Lasso done wrong. It was over long. It was boring. We got lost in all the plot lines. And I've had as many people on the other side say single best episode of Ted Lasso. Everything I look for when it comes to an episode. This really seems to be pushing people to either, to either extreme. Yeah, it was to me... Like they stretched themselves, right, to do a different type of episode, and they succeeded in grand fashion. I thought it was the most entertain one of the most entertaining hours of television I've seen like in the last couple of years. Um, I was just I was just locked in. I mean, there were cheer worthy moments. There were things that happened where I was just so fundamentally happy. You know, they they're taking the team down to build them back up, right? And and they've gone down in the last couple of weeks where they've been losing. Things haven't been going well. And there were so many individual stories of personal triumph in this night. And they, you know, there's the some that interconnect, there's some that did not. I thought it was just masterful. And it, it, it got me, it did two things. One, it was a bit of an insular episode, right? It was a night in Amsterdam. And then mm -hmm. the night was over and that's it. And I was entertained and I liked it. But it also set up for the rest of the season where I feel like characters like Rebecca, Higgins, Isaac, William, Ted all fundamentally different now they they've come out of it different they, there's something that has changed yes. for all of those characters which is really exciting no one left that pillow fight unchanged people men boys enter that room and left men i think we all can agree on that hopefully hopefully what they're doing is showing the team much more connected 
you know, much okay. more invested in doing things as a unit and not not separately. Right. Ted, I love the idea that Ted made up this. He's like cooked up this new this way for the it, team it to independently play. invented total football. Right, but the thing I like about it is that it had been invented before. If they had done this and he truly did invent a new way to play soccer <laughs> that was super great, like it, I, I would be realistic. But the fact that he basically reinvented something that has since fallen out of favor that actually really works really well with their it, current personnel and what they're trying to do, that works for me. One of the things I, I am needing to come to terms with, and it's becoming particularly stark this season, is that this is a silly show. It is a show of where not only is it comfortable with the characters being silly, it's comfortable with how the world interacts with them being silly. And I think the writers have got increasingly comfortable with going in that direction over time. And I think this episode at certain moments kind of highlights that, that they don't always feel the need for the world to operate in terms of realistic terms. They operate in the world of Ted Lasso terms. I've struggled with that at times for a while, but I think I'm becoming more accepting of it over time. So you think the first season was less silly? I think the first season was it was because it was so focused on Ted was silly through him. The universe was pretty starkly realistic. Ted Ted as he operated in it was a unique little you know ball of energy that he was. But I think the universe and the other characters operating around it were more realistic and grounded than they are now. And that just made reflect the, the, the natural inclination of characters over time to be more focused around their tropes and their roles in the story rather than necessarily to the degree there is realistic or rounded characters. So we know Jamie, or sorry, we know Danny is silly. Mm-hmm. We know Sam is a bit of a caricature. What other characters are you thinking aren't realistic? Because I felt like there was some pretty like realistic portrayals here. Like what Higgins went through that night is... That, that that didn't seem cartoonish to me. That seemed like a guy who really loves jazz music. I think we can hit them as we go through the recap and the, and the moments they come up. All right. You don't want to talk to me about it. All right. Anyways, a good <laughs> podcast. Thanks, everybody, for joining. We'll be back with you next week to discuss that. Ted Lasso, episode seven. Okay. Start fine, recap. fine. If you want to discuss them now, we can discuss them now. It's a pretty... It's pretty pretty interesting charge that the show's like more unrealistic now than it used to be because it was so to me over the top silly in the first season i just wanted to poke that a little bit all right let's get into our our segments we start with tea time with lee where i attempt to convince ted that hot tea is not quite as bad as he thinks it is spencer will bring a sweet tea treat to the episode with biscuits with the boss and we'll get into the recap spencer leads recap every week then we will do train wreck of the episode a few nominees for that this week Mm-hmm. And we'll get into Ted's life lessons of the episode. Okay, Spencer, let's do sweet treat of the episode. What do you got for us? Well, in honor of the Dutch concept of Helsing, or something like, however you pronounce that wonderful word we're going to get said like four or five times in this episode, I decided to do comfort treats for myself. And Sarah, I ask you as a longtime friend of mine, what is my most comfortable treat when it comes to desserts? Cookie. I got a whole mess of chocolate chip cookies here with me. I also got the best that Costco has to offer. uh, This is a peanut butter slash cream slash chocolate pie as well. So I'm doubling down on all kinds of different desserts to indulge in. Whoa, look at that. Two, you got two desserts on the platter. It's peanut butter cream pie. Is that what that is? Peanut butter chocolate cream pie. And I got uh, three chocolate chip cookies to dip into it as I go through the episode. Did you do an individual stop at Costco for this? I did. Wow. 
My bet was this would be your catnip of an episode, and it's an episode that's grounded in comfort, so I'm going to bring all kinds of comfort foods to enjoy it here with you. Interesting. Okay, so I wish I had known where this was going, because previously, this season, I did a tea time with Lee that was a mushroom tea. Yes, it was perfectly, perfectly placed for this episode. What the hell? And then then they do literally psychosilum mushroom tea on the episode. Here's what I've got this week. So I went down. So I'm in Savannah this week with my wife. We're, we're doing a little bit of an anniversary weekend. Podcast professional. I am still doing the podcast. But we're, we walked around the farmer's market. Farmer's markets are interesting because for a long time they were vegetables. Then about 10 years ago, farmer's market changed to, well, now it's just like soap and candles. Now they sell weed at farmer's markets. Did you know? Did you know this is such so? There's like people selling no. weed at farmers markets. I see this everywhere. Not, not where I am. So, well, the 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 weed that doesn't reach the whatever THC threshold that you're allowed to sell what, now. Are they, are they effectively selling hemp or just with the Farm Act? The Farm Act that, that allows you to sell like basically bud that doesn't reach a certain level of THC. Anyway, they sell that now at. Farmer's market's pretty popular. So there's a tea uh, that I found that has THC in it that is supposed to help you fall asleep. Now anybody knows me, knows I don't drink. I don't indulge in drugs. So I won't be drinking this. I'm like, Ted, I've made it. It's sitting over here to the side. I won't be drinking it myself. My wife, however, probably before she falls asleep, might have a little bit. So it is a THC, I think it's Delta 9 tea that they you brew with tea bags, helps you fall asleep. Hopefully this isn't a dud. I don't. I won't know. I'm not going to indulge in it, but uh, hopefully not a dud uh, like Ted did. I wish I didn't have to resort to this. I wish I could have done the mushroom tea, but lo and behold, already uh, did it. Already, already, already got that out of the way this season. Man, I was so mad when I saw. It. I was like, damn it, that mushroom tea would have been perfect for this uh, episode. Well, so I, there we go. That is I, the segments. I sincerely hope the mushroom. Well, I know the mushroom tea you tried previously almost certainly tasted better than the mushroom tea they explored this episode. I didn't really like it, but I, I think it probably was better than what they were I, doing. Yeah, anything. Psychosilla mushrooms are pretty gross. I have made that kind of mushroom tea for other people. They almost vomited upon drinking it. It it's not it's not ideal. You've made like the mushroom yes. like shroom tea. I, I for have people? never tried it, but I ma- I purpose I had a friend that wanted to try it. I ma- and I made the mushroom tea along the designs they did, and then I shepherded them through the process. Wow, look at that. And then today I'm making the, the Delta 9 THC tea. We for are sleepy here time tea for other people. That I am also not drinking. So a couple straight edge guys is what you're listening to here. That's what you got. This is the story we're representing to all of our employers right now. Okay. Season three, episode six, Sunflower. Spencer's got the recap. Take it away. Uh, we start off with an exhibition match in Holland. And uh, fair to say, Lee, don't think it's going very well for Richmond. Uh didn't catch the name of the team they're the team they're playing against, but they are losing this friendly 5-0. It's a friendly. It's a fake match. It's not real. You're a fake podcaster. I'm saying fake words. <laughs> this is a fake microphone. Uh, 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 we we go heavily at the start of this episode into the most recur- one of the most focused recurring themes or like character traits that the show likes to do. All Dutch people kind of blunt assholes. That's the trope they like to emphasize with respect to the Dutch on this show, of where the team the team owner apologizes for beating their shit in uh, to Rebecca five nil. That's a beating, man. That is yeah, tough. Not great, not great. 
uh, also corrects Higgins' pronunciation of Johan Krujev, uh, while a similarly blunt reporter interviews Jan and Roy, asking would, he, would Jan agree that this was an extremely demoralizing result, to which, of course, Jan does. But, well, he, he says that the spirits were already broken, so n not any worse than that. And meanwhile, similar as you were setting up, he surprisingly hesitantly asks Roy, do, how do you feel about uh, their objectively perfor poor performance? Do you think it's due to the fact that you're nothing without Zava? Who Hell cares? It's a fucking friendly, friendly, it's a pretend match. It's a pretend conversation. You're a pretend person with a pretend job. And I'm having a real hard time pretending to give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> I would, if that kind of response actually came in an interview from a coach, oh, that would Lord be making heaven. rounds on the internet. Wouldn't that be so good? Take that for data. That'd be so good. Uh, Roy is once again doing this as a favor to Keeley, as we've seen him do several times. Hickey Bottoms! Uh, meanwhile, the cast, as Lee had already set up, is going to begin to disperse. They will operate in their own little separate realms. I think there are, as you said, six main plot lines, plus maybe even throw in a seventh for Keeley here. But let's set them up. A lot going on. I'm going I wish to they. I wish they had followed Keeley's plotline, but yeah, that not not enough time, Spencer. Not enough time. Di different country. <laughs> there are limits. I'm going to recount these. Unlike how the episode did, for the sake of this taking less than four hours, I'm going to recount them each each completely, rather than jumping in between them, because otherwise I would get whiplash from the amount of whipping around this is, ne that is necessary. This you're episode. Gonna, you're going to do the recap by just going through each one individually. I'm going to go through them each individually so we can understand them in concrete forms rather than having to jump around each, every eight seconds as we go through them. We'll see how it reads. Boy, man. Some days, some days we've got a lot of chemistry. Today we're, we're struggling because this is going to fuck my notes all to hell. But I'll try. Let's do it. I'll try. <laughs> we'll manage. We'll manage. Uh, Higgins, as, who is utterly immune to anything resembling either suspicion or apparently this episode's self-awareness and how he's saying these things, Heads off for either a date in the red light district or nah. uh, for Will on this night to become a man. Nah. As Lee indicates, every single member of the show and audience pauses for a half second, listens to the exact words that Higgins says, and then just goes, nah. Will gets roped up into Higgins' plans because he doesn't have anything else previously planned and seems at least moderately intrigued on the idea of going to the red light district. Maybe not with Higgins, but this is his means to an end. Well, it does seem to me that Will... Will's the one that never goes, nah. <laughs> Will doesn't Will doesn't really seem to connect with a lot of the other players on the team, and he sure. he does seem to really like Higgins. I, think I, I don't think this was a... Well, I, I might as well go with you. I do think it was like, I'll go with the person I know the best. Well, it's also Higgins' offer, which he seemed legitimately touched by. But like Piggy you said, bottoms. only person we've really seen him connect with to some degree, but that's because that's that's that person specifically reached out to him, was Zava. Otherwise, he has kind of a, not as intimate of a connection with any of the teammates that we've seen. But yeah, Higgins the first and foremost. Keely, hitting a pre preemptively apologetic note in her vocal range, is set to go on a private plane trip to Norway oh. with Jack to see the best Aurora Borealis ever. The Borealist, apparently. Mm. Aurora Borealis. Uh. More on that in the Sports Center Top 10. I'll tell you, you do learn when you're with somebody, when you're friends with somebody for a long time, you do learn what their rejection tone is. I know your rejection tone. Know it extremely well. Uh, uh, not responding to your messages. Well, yeah, most of the time. But if I if I if I've cornered you and you have to respond, I do know exactly the tone that you'll take 
Uh, I know it with a couple of my friends too. That I felt like that was a really realistic thing where she just goes, "Oh, oh, I already know. It's cool. Mm-hmm. It's fine." I wish we had followed them though, because as established on previous episodes of Lasso Lowdown, I am a big supporter of the Keely Jack relationship. I'd like to see that private plane pick Keely up, and for her to go to the most borealist of Aurora Borealis. I suspect that we will at least see the aftermath of it next episode, in terms of either returning on the plane or at least having Keely recount what a wonderful time it was. Roy is curious about Keely wandering off her own and comes up to ask what's going on, to which Rebecca pointedly notes that Keely is going off to spend time with someone who believes that they deserve her. Which Roy, is, as many people have commented, did not think that he did or had mixed feelings about. In my notes, all caps, and that motherfucker is how you treat someone who breaks up with your friend, exclamation point. She was polite. You were... You're, from what you've described previously, you're more inclined to actually actually stick a stiletto in his neck when he gets close. I'm willing to say that I'm on the far extreme of this and that maybe I could tone it down a little. But I do think that the sort of like, well, let's be objective. I mean, I, 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 I talked to her and, you know, she she has some good points. Don't say that shit to your friend. Just be like, you know what? At least Fuck dismissive you. snark. Fuck you. Like, you you know, you you, you know, whatever. Because I, I, I feel like because Rebecca is still uh, Roy's boss, right? She can't be. But so rude. I feel like mm-hmm. this is about as rude as she could go in this situation. I felt like it was well done. Shout yeah. Rebecca. Hey, question for you. How's Rebecca looked this episode? Uh, damn great, as we're going to get to. In various mm. different ways. Mm, interesting. Uh, on the bus, Ted observes the team is, I'd say, at best, looking down right now. Oh, hey, can I point out something? That um, You know how Roy tore up the sign? You know the sign says Zava 2013 to 2013? I love that little detail. He didn't yes. even, yes. even like, stay here at the club. I thought that was good. Hey, tradition. Tradition! Uh, Ted sees the team's depressed, and the only he can get them out of their pineapple percussions. Doldrums, if you will. And it offers, I'm about to say three words that no coach ever says unless he dang well means it. To which the team ponders, uh, you're all shit? No. Knowledge is power. True, but no. Live, laugh, love. Thank you, Sam. Eh, no. Correct answer. One that everybody wants to hear in this particular context. No curfew tonight. The team is immediately energized. They are immediately excited. They've been released to their own recognizance until 10 a.m. in Amsterdam. One of the lead tourist tourist party capitals of the world. You ever been to Amsterdam, Spencer? I've never actually been. I had a trip planned to it. We got canceled to be rerouted elsewhere. Have you? Absolutely, I have. Yes, I uh, I did. I went in my 20s. Went and went when I went my partying days had wonderful wonderful time there. Um, yeah, it, it's just a it's interesting because it's got like all the all the parts of a city that would be like like a fun European city to visit where it's like great history, beautiful museums, like wonderful motifs with the windmills and all that stuff, great architecture, just cool shit to do. Generally, a lot of parks, a lot of public space, but then it also is like oh yeah, and if you want to like fucking drink 24 hours a day, do a lot of drugs to watch people have sex on stage. You got that too. So it's really a big, big poo-poo platter of shit to do in Amsterdam, I would say. It's, a, it's essentially giving, it's a, it's a taste of Europe experience. Every, little aspects of every other po- possible place, experience and enjoy them in Amsterdam. So the, uh, in Amsterdam, there's the, um, there's the, uh, the Van Gogh Museum. Sure. But there's also like the other, there's another museum there. I'm looking it up to tell you exactly what it is. I'll tell you here in a second. Oh, okay. the the Rijksmuseum. It's Which called R R I J K S Museum. 
Mm-hmm. And so, like, when you go to Amsterdam, there's, like, this massive line for the Van Gogh museums, like, fucking to Germany. And then there's the Rijksmuseum, which you can just walk into. But, like, the Rijksmuseum is one of the best museums I've ever been to. Like, it has what, the original night. It? It has, well, first off, it has the original Night's Watch painting in it. Oh, I love that yeah. fucking painting. It's one of my favorite paintings. Me too. It's got, it's got so much Impressionist stuff, um, so much romance, uh, romance period stuff. It, it is huge, long, absolutely worth going to. So my suggestion, anybody going to Amsterdam, I, I didn't go to a sex show, but it seems lame. I wouldn't do that. I would go to museums. I would not necessarily wait half a day for the Van Gogh Museum. Go to the Rijksmuseum. So you're Team Trent here in terms of suggestions on how they can spend their one night in Amsterdam. Yeah, as in all things, I think Trent has the has the right idea, which is like if I was in the team, like honestly, if I was in the team, that's what I would have wanted to do. A museum night, mm-hmm. where you you go to all the all the all the art museums, I would have been there in a heartbeat. In in a bit, we're going to go through all the options that they pondered and whether they ultimately decided on the right conclusion. Here I am, uh, jumping the gun again. The team agrees to meet in their lobby to arrange where they're going to go thereafter. Except Jamie, who is not on fucking holiday from training. As Roy declares to the bus, which is interesting. Not you, Tark! Do we know whether anybody else on the team knew that Jamie was getting specialty training from Roy? I'm not sure that they know that. That's a great point, but I, I think they know now. Uh, it is abundantly out there, and I'm I'm almost curious what... I mean, I don't think this is ever going to come up, but I'm almost curious whether any of the, anybody would, how the other teammates would feel that one of the coaches is dedicating all this extra time to one player. So that's a great point, and I think that there would be the chance for people to think there's some favoritism going on. I think that Roy is so brutal with it, like 4 a.m. runs and like you can't, the one night you get, you know, you don't have a curfew in Amsterdam, you can't. Like he's so sort of tough with it that I think, I'm not sure anybody's envious. Uh, yeah, I think most of the people are kind of almost looking, you know, we're empathetically at Jamie as he, as, he, as he leaves the bus. Notably, Jamie, though, does not seem downbeat about this at all. Can if I anything, just say... Jamie has a wonderful episode. Jamie has a great episode. Legitimately. Unquestionably. We learn a lot about the guy, too, before we're done as well. He is, not, he is my new number. Like, it's always been Keeley. has been my favorite character of the show since day mm-hmm. one. Keeley has been surpassed by Jamie. Jamie is my favorite character of the show. I root for him more than I root for any other character on the show. I love his storyline. I love how the actor has changed over time. As you, you, you would quote, it feels earned. Mm-hmm. It feels like... Like, we deserve what we're getting with Jamie because but there's been hard work to it. I love this character, and I root for him a lot. He's the character I'm most proud of, if that makes sense. For it how sure far does. he's come and for what effort he's put into coming to that point. And, hell, I'll do you a favor then. Jamie being your favorite character, I'm going to move my notes around and start with Jamie and Roy's plot line. Oh, it's so exciting. You. Let's go to Wind Wheels. Jamie, Jamie charges off the bus, and he's got Singing a head of steam. Songs. He's excited. This is a guy that, from his perspective, this isn't punishment that he's on training and can hang out with his teammates. He is viewing this thing as a kind of sightseeing tour of Amsterdam, a city that he knows, a city that he loves. And fair to say, guy's surprisingly knowledgeable about this. We originally, like season one, saw Jamie as an airhead. This guy's doing a pretty effective tour of various highlights of of Amsterdam as they're running through it in rapid order. So you fucked me up here, but um, I do have Jamie's Amsterdam facts handy if you'd like to hear them. Please, go on. Jamie's Amsterdam facts. Amsterdam's origins date back to the 13th century. That's mod, isn't it? Two. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the world-famous Skinny Bridge, as seen in the major motion picture James Bond. Diamonds are forever. Three. Next stop, 
Amsterdam's skinniest house. Which that we is definitely a thing get to, to see. But that is a thing to see. It's something to, something to check out. It is, looks very uncomfortable for. Right down there, that's the bench from Fault in Our Stars. And number five, <laughs> they put a dam on the River Amster. Amsterdam. It's good, isn't it? it? It's true, and it blew my mind. I had no idea that that was the origins of the, of, of the name of the city. We'll discuss more on that in Sports Center Top Ten. But I was like, legitimately paused the episode to check that. I was like, oh shit, is the name Dam actually in there? Is that where it comes from? Yeah. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, Roy listens to these facts, but is visibly and increasingly feeling his age as they're running through the city. Well, Jamie, if anything, is just getting more energetic as they go along. He seems increasingly annoyed until finally he just asks Jamie, how the hell Jamie knows so much about this damn town, which Roy has, nev- where Roy has never even been here before. Jamie seems surprised to hear that Roy has never been to this city and asks Roy about it, to which Roy comments that from his perspective, it looks like the Disney version of an old city looking all fake, particularly with the windmills. I gotta ask you, you've been there. How do you, how do you feel about Roy's summary when it comes to this city? I don't think it feels fake. I don't. I You know what? I mean, I'm in Savannah this weekend. Savannah can feel a little fake. Uh, it, it looks like almost like adult Disneyland. No, I don't. I didn't think Amsterdam looked fake. I do think that they have, a, like, I, like I said, they have a motif. They mm-hmm. like the windmills. Um, they like the tulips. Who doesn't? They like the bikes. They like the tulips. They like the windmills. And they like the boathouses. And you're going to get a lot of that there. But I think it's all genuine. It feels genuine to me anyway when I'm there. Well, Jamie clearly agrees. Kind of presses Roy on this for... Well, focuses heavily on the fact that Roy apparently... And I've never heard some a human being say this statement before. Doesn't believe that windmills exist. And thinks that there's some aspect of fake. Jamie flabbergasted by that, concludes that they need to go find bikes, and tonight they need to go take Roy to see a windmill, so that he can agree that this thing that's been in existence since the 9th century AD is in existence in the world. It's because he windmills! Singing sweet songs, a melody pure and true. (laughs) I sing in, this is my mess. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Thank you, appreciate it. Uh, one, of, one thing people may not know, Amsterdam being a heavily bike-friendly city is also the bike theft capital of the world. Are you in a casino? <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Yeah, that's going to be fun when we get there. Uh, so, Jamie, did, did you pick up this? I don't. I think they were trying to hide it that much that they didn't explicitly say it. Jamie basically just expects that eventually someone's going to try to sell them stolen bikes. He's basically just waiting for that moment to happen. So when a guy walks up, offers such, and then promptly goes off to steal them too, noting that he enjoys the challenge of doing so, Jamie just treats this as a normal experience in Amsterdam. Because, you know, kind of is. Roy has some resistance to this plan, though. Uh, Though Jamie buys two bikes at, you know, extra price even than the guy wants, Roy admits that part of his problem is that he does not know how to ride a bike, to which both Jamie and the bike thief share a boisterous laugh at. Roy explains that when he went to Sutherland, his granddad told him that he would teach him how to ride a bike for Christmas, but then he fucking died, and so he hasn't been on a bike since. To which Roy acknowledges that it's actually kind of sad and disrespectful memory that he never actually learned, but, you know, it's too late to do anything about it, and sorry that he expresses his negative emotions on you, and just starts making little yelly noises. Not sure he says sorry at this point. He says, uh, can I please get back to... 
expressing my negative emotions against you. You're I, right. I, I would I would prefer not to feel these feelings right now. And Jamie, to his credit, is kind of like, yeah, bring it on. Let's go. Yeah, do it, do it well, for me. Although he does want to teach him to ride a bike. Yeah, I mean, Jamie basically is like decides, okay, I'm going to stop being a dick, and I'm going to teach you how to ride a bike now for granddad. Jamie is the type of friend that Roy has to have. Roy can't, like, Roy has him. such a, he's so grumpy. He has such a temper. He, You have to manage around him so much that the only kind of friend he could have would be someone like Jamie, who every time he barks something just goes, ah, eh, whatever. You know, like, he doesn't take it, like, he's been around Rolls enough now, with it. doesn't take it seriously anymore. It's the only way to manage Roy, because Roy is otherwise going to use every opportunity to try to force you at arm's length. Jamie is here to, recognizing that that's a thing, he's here to subvert it, get past it, and get through it. So step one, apologizing a bit for being a bit of a dick earlier, he decides that, well, he's going to teach Roy how to ride a bike right now. Uh, I'm curious of your summary. How would you say that Roy does in terms of the training to learn how to ride a bike? I would say unnaturally good. I would say unnaturally good. It, it's, comic, it's comic at first because he refuses actively to use anything resembling pedals. But he becomes functionally adept at this activity that he never has any basis in within seemingly like a 30-minute period. Maybe he's just got natural skills in terms of what he has to go through. But though he has ultimately some difficulties with pedals or with turning whatever else, he seems to get pretty adept in the course of about one montage before heading off, at least motivated more than a little bit by trying to get closer to Jamie to murder him. And they head out for Granddad and to see a windmill. On their ride, Jamie opens up a bit, and we hear two stories from Jamie on the subject of the last times that he was in Amsterdam. One when he was 14, one seemingly a few years later. While in the process of also apologizing to Roy for being a bit of a dick to him on the subject of riding a bike or whatever else. First trip. He was 14, his dad brought him there when his dad was briefly back together with his mom and was making at least a public effort on the subject of trying to get close to Jamie for the purported purpose of seeing a football match. Lee, what were they actually in town for? Well, going to make Jamie a man. He's going to take him to the red light district, find him a nice prostitute for the evening, and do the deed. Roy immediately thinks that that must have been more than a little bit traumatizing, but interestingly enough, Jamie clearly hasn't thought of it in that light. If anything, he hasn't thought about it much at all. What was more meaningful to him was the second trip with his mom, where they did more along the lines of what Leah would enjoy for a trip. They went to museums, they went on tours, tried their first bits of classic Dutch cuisine, and he loved it. And he still remembers it. And it was so meaningful to him that he even kind of associates his dad with it, even though his dad wasn't anywhere near the location at the time. All of it made for a much more meaningful trip for him. But hearing this, Roy immediately apologizes too, which is what you talked about, which is something we don't see from Roy much at all. Noting that he thinks that Keeley has a girlfriend, which is I think he's offering as a bit of an explanation why he's even been on a little bit of a live live wire edge from a from even a, a usual high Roy level. Acknowledging that, they head off in search of their windmill of their windmill white whale, which they eventually find. They eventually they cheer about. And then Roy promptly crashes into a bush, leaving him with one functional bite to return home from. So I don't, I've given up on my notes at this point. Uh, so I'll try to, to, to talk about a couple of the things that I noticed in the scene. One is I felt like 
Jamie, old Jamie came back for just a brief second. Because when you have someone who is kind of a pompous ass and treats people poorly and then they come out of it, you, I think you still have brief glimpses. And the brief glimpse you got was that must have been traumatizing. And Jamie was like, no, she loved it. Like, you know, because he, you know, that it's still that felt like season one, Jamie. And then he slipped right back out of it. He said, oh, no, like he, he kind of he, he pulled himself out of that. But you got about 10 seconds of it. And then the second thing I noticed um, was uh, how excited Jamie was to get involved in Roy's memory mm-hmm. where he's his four granddad. Like, you know, he like there makes it a mutual pact. Yeah. Like he's, he's ready to get down in the trenches with Roy really quick. And when Roy mentions the thing with Keeley, I think, I mean, it's clear that Jamie still has feelings for Keeley, but he's even, he didn't even say something rude. Then he just went, Oh, okay. All right. Well, let's do some windmills. Like the, the, their, their friendship has progressed maybe even more than we've realized. Uh, mm-hmm. I think they're, I think they've, they've started to become like real good friends. I, I very much agree. It's no longer just a subject to empathy or forced roles or whatever else. I think Jamie just legitimately enjoys Roy's company at this point. And I think Roy, at least mildly in spite of himself, does too. Look at friendships forming on this show. How novel. We will return to them once we get back to the end of the episode. But in the meantime, Rebecca's doing things, isn't she, Dust? Like you referenced, she Ooh. begins her story, I would say, kind of walking cluelessly through a bike lane, nearly getting run over like a dozen times in the process, while... Even Shet, uh, you know, Sassy comments on the fact, are you in a casino Sassy with all those bells in the background? Sassy Smurf! This is something that will happen to you in Amsterdam. I, think, I feel like this is an inside joke for anybody who's been to Amsterdam. Very much an inside joke. The the bikes just passing you and people being very rude. And then I think it even happened at one point where um, Higgins was passed and somebody yelled, Tourist! Tourist! You yep. get that too. That's pretty common in the city. So I think it's a nice little inside joke. I will say this. I... This is, I think this is a good, because I, when you, when you said at the start of the episode, oh man, they've gotten really silly. I kind of bristled at that because I felt like season one was so silly, but there are moments of absolute surrealism. Like the way that Rebecca fell off that bridge, it's like, she, she that wheeled off that, thing. that didn't, that was, that was a joke because if a normal human fell that way, they'd have hit their head, they'd have busted their back, they could, could have fucking died. I mean, like that was a very, I know they had to get her in the water so that the, he, she could have wet clothes to get into the guy's house. That's the they plot, pick, right? They but the, the way they chose way to possible. get her in the water is like, that's yeah. not particularly realistic in the sense that like, of course somebody could fall like that, but it would be a bigger deal than just, nope, I'm good. No problem. Like that, mm-hmm. that, that part felt unrealistic. She got clocked. She got spun around. She got like, you know, somebody's gonna have a concussion protocol kind of thing with how she got knocked off that bridge. But she's walking in a very obvious bike lane, which like you said, this feels like a, they're throwing a bone to the residents of Amsterdam who are just pissed at tourists not understanding very obvious bike lanes. Uh, so it's bridge playing into the arrogant, uh, the ignorant and arrogant tourist and forwarder tropes, particularly in Amsterdam. Sassy is calling her out of concern, having felt a feeling in her gut that maybe Rebecca might be in trouble. Rebecca says she's just fine. You know, she's wandering around. She's enjoying her own time in Amsterdam. Uh, before she gets distracted by what she assumes at the time is a cat-calling Dutchman. However, he's actually just here to warn her that she's very, very visibly, honestly in a bike lane. Well, but not just here to warn her for that. I mean, he did say, he, I, he I needed to speak to this beautiful woman. Yeah, exactly. Well, how else do you speak to ladies you don't know, sir? I start every sentence in that way. Well, I, I, I do assume that if you actually saw Rebecca, that's how you would start your conversation. 
Uh, I think I think it'd be more just inability to express coherent words. That one, yes. This is my message for you. Uh, at the exact moment that she is somewhat being either catcalled or warned by this Dutchman, she gets, like you said, utterly floored by like two bikes hitting her in different directions to cartwheel her off this bridge. She falls in the canal. Her phone goes flying. She gets soaked. And she swims over to the encouraging Dutchman, who, in an act of what is profoundly, from my perspective, unrealistic solidarity, chucks his own phone in the water. I, I, I don't think there's any scenario by which I don't care how bad I feel for you. Am I chucking my own phone in the water just because you lost yours? Sorry, man. Uh, he helps her onto the boat. McDreamy. What? Bit, bit of a dreamy is, gesture? His name is McDreamy. That's what we're going to call him. Uh, from now on that the is about the max amount of information we have on that point. McDreamy is how I will refer to him going forward. Thank you for the, thank you for telling me his real name. Danke. Uh, Rebecca takes a shower in McDreamy's house and begins to roam around McDreamy's charming houseboat home, which has nice wood everywhere, old posters of flying boats and all kinds of things, and what appears to be, and I'm curious to your thoughts, a perfectly preserved young girl's room. Are we suspecting this is for his daughter? Yeah, I didn't think it was perfectly preserved i thought it was just his daughter's room she just happened not to be there right now i, I was kind of curious. i mean i wasn't sure how old his daughter might be this either felt like it's he hasn't seen her in a long time and he keeps it from when he remembers her or she visits often and she just happens to be relatively young either either way who knows uh she also she's touring around this room discovers that his dryer takes the greater part of three hours to dry her clothes what kind and- of dryer is this that, that takes three hours to do this. Good Lord, <laughs> I, I have had those dryers before. You know, they they, they work the greater part of a day to get anything even vaguely dry. Maybe require like... multiple attempts at it. Uh, also, he's left her a lovely cup of tea with the promise that it's not poison. Does she actually still drink from the other cup though? I wasn't, I wasn't sure from what, from what cup she actually picks. I, I'm not sure the cup matters, right? Because he was saying the tea itself is not is not drugged. Okay, but it was, I think it was one set on one cup, and I think she drinks out of the other, but wasn't sure from the scene. Gazelle. Uh, indeed. The host also even politely stepped out to avoid the notions of peepholes, which, as Rebecca actually points out, kind of dates him a little bit. Seemed like she was assuming that he was younger than he actually was, and seems mentally adjusting as a result of that new information. On return, he finds that she is bleeding, and having a med kit and a military background, he sets to work, ending with a ending the effort with a bit of a kiss, suggesting that he has fixed a certain measure of boo-boos in the past. I'm going to put this out there now. Is this guy giving us the means of access to another child by which Rebecca can be a mother? Is that part of, is that a potential tie-in for if we want to design some meaning and connection to the third prophecy? I don't think she ever sees him again. You, you think this is truly just a one-night romance that she'll remember forever? I do indeed. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll, we'll see how much, how much, which romantic trope the show decides to go into on this. But whether it's just a memory that's going to be treasured for all time, or a manic pixie Dutchman of some of some category, or whether it's a match made in heaven that they're eventually going to be reunited in some shape or form. The show loves romantic comedy tropes. Either one's an option. Uh, the, um, Mr. McDreamy, McDreamy, or is it Mr. McDreamy? Is it Mc- Sir McDreamy? McDreamy? Just McDreamy. Just, okay. Just McDreamy. Uh, comments on her strong ankles and offers her a bit of brandy for her tea, which she demurs. No, 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 no. Of course not. No. Of course not. Uh, he then also equally politely just says, I can get you a cab with, with a bag for your wet clothes. Or I can make you dinner. 
After what would resemble a little bit of hesitation, she agrees to the latter, and he christens the choice with, please, you're so much better than I am at pronouncing this this, this Dutch word. Gezellig. Thank you. Which she, being like me, having no understanding of what that means or any connection to it, just simply politely nods and asks no questions. A very Spencer reaction to that kind of situation. Uh, he offers her a change of clothes from what is a utterly giant Tupperware of clothing for a tiny houseboat, which he assures her are in no way trophies, but instead leftovers from his very tall former partner, who unfortunately did not pass away. Rebecca puts on... What would you, how, would you, how would you describe this dress? Kind of like a spring slash maybe beach dress? Su- classic sundress style? I call it I call it a classic, tu- classic tulip dress. Let's call a it a tulip, tulip dress. dress. Let's call it that. I don't know. I just made that up. I, I, that, that's what we'll call it from here. She puts on a lovely I, tulip dress. I feel like there was a... Like, this guy made so many great jokes. I mean, he, first off, this guy... I like to think this guy exists. You, you want to you, you want to meet this guy, or you want you know people like Rebecca to run into this guy, or both? I like to think that men there are men out there that operate this way. They're this charming and pleasant and funny. But when she fell asleep and he never made a move, he never kissed. I, like I was like, well, I'm not, I just don't have a lot of faith in my team. <laughs> hey, that, hey, that hey. men would really do this. I I like, but I wish men would like this. I wish they were, of course. Are, are we factoring into the unrealistic Ted Lasso universe in some ways? I'm afraid to say. Yeah, this guy's. I wouldn't say this guy's a particularly realistic character, nor was he really meant he, to be. He was obviously he, meant, to be, meant to be. He's meant to be a romantic trope for Rebecca. He was meant to be exposure therapy to to Rebecca to teach her like that she can she she can enjoy herself romantically again. Everything doesn't have to be a burden. But um, he, uh, yeah, he. I, I, I'll go through a few things as we go through that I'm just sure. like really like. Uh, is that he, is that something that's honestly going to happen? He's meant to be perfect. He's meant to be ideal. He's meant to be the most perfect individual that you could meet for a single night in Amsterdam kind of thing. If, if but he tells, meant, me, tells a lot of good jokes. Tells I feel a lot of like, good jokes. I feel like I, I was really hoping that when he brought the, the thing of clothes out, he would have been like, you know, oh, they're, they're from, the, you know, they're from each girl. Like, make a joke that there's from multiple women. Well, he, he does hit a couple jokes at this point. He, jo- he, he jokes about the fact that, you know, unfortunately his wife didn't pass away or partner. But see, but see that like that is almost like his one quote flaw, but it's not because it hits perfectly for Rebecca, who thinks the same exact thing about her ex. So it's it's just perfect. She's he is utterly, almost unrealistically perfect for her for tonight for her arc. That's that's what he's stepping in for. He he also jokes as well that you know it's uh, that though she comments it's a it's a lovely dress that his wife hated it because he bought it for her. Sounds like they had a great relationship back in the day. Yikes. Uh, Rebecca initially turns down the offer of a foot massage, which he says he has very sound technique with respect to. Sure. And Sith elects to stand stubbornly with tired feet, stone cold sober. Upon having that said out loud and realizing, eh, what else am I going to do in Amsterdam tonight? And I can just imminently trust this guy because he's a freaking angel arrived on earth for this occasion. She elects to let her hair down a bit. Embrace the Dutch word that she does not understand, Dutch. and uh, particularly when she's reassured that the, the that the guy's giant ex, McDreamy's giant ex won't be showing up on scene, and they set off to enjoy it, set down to enjoy the evening. But uh, what well, part part of the way she's also reassured with respect to the giant ex showing up is that he expresses that they are definitely done, 
that she was unfaithful to him. Again, she it's the, the perfect mirror scenario. He's just, it's like, yep. you know, as we heard expressed, he's farther along in the chain than she is. Uh, that he was immediately sent into a spiral as a result of his wife's unfaithfulness. And it nearly destroyed their family before he realized, but then, with time, I realized that this thing didn't happen to me. It happened for me. You what know? a line. And that's exactly the lesson for Rebecca. They, 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 the writers laid it out there for us. Was This yes. is what this night teaches Rebecca, is that maybe this thing, Rupert being the worst fucking human ever and her being divorced now, maybe it happened for her. Maybe now she can have a better time in life with people like McDreamy, because that like... Yeah, I mean, it, it's like it's what Sassy told us earlier about Ted, that, you know, she's still a mess. She's just farther along in terms of dealing and come to terms with it. This guy is on the same kind of mess category that Rebecca is. He's just had a lot more time to make it a reasonable, well-adjusted part of his life. Uh, they are interrupted by Andre Hazes' version of Kenny Rogers' She Believes in Me before they both, quality singers. You, you, you want to add another realistic, unrealistic element? Two individuals, this charming, this just having to meet, meet um, just met randomly at Amsterdam, both excellent singers in terms of them belting out these tunes in their own respective languages. They're enjoying each other. They're sing They're both singing their own language. They're singing each other's language. They're having, they're already having a great time together. And what is a imminently cute night continues to unfold. It is cozy. Well, it is comfortable. Yeah. Well, they Hannah Waddingham is just a great singer. Like, I think she's Absolutely. done like Broadway and stage stuff. Like, and so they know they have that. They're going to make so they're, task Exactly. Task. So they task just work, task. they seem to like work in little moments for her to be able to it's, sing, which I appreciate. It's, it's like, it's like getting Higgins to play instruments. Instruments. The actor who plays Higgins can play, can play these things. Why not put it on stage? Baby, uh, don't worry about a thing. We, we, we're not there yet. We're going to end with that. Every little thing. Uh, while they're having this utterly cozy infinity, finally, Rebecca asks what this uh, Dutch word, please. Is that like... Means. McDreamy kind of struggles to define it, and it, I looked it up. This is a word that Dutch people kind of struggle to define because it doesn't have a direct English comparison. It's more of a feeling. It's cozy. It's comfortable. It's applying very much to circumstances based on the atmosphere you've got going into those circumstances of like, you know, even going to a doctor's office can be that word. When you're there with friends and enjoying the day. He expresses so Americans, no when they travel, are really, can be, some Americans can be pretty pompous when they travel. We're, and I love. We're usually at the nadir or close to it. We compete with Germans uh, in, ter in terms of people's popular views of tourists. I enjoy the sort of sit the fuck down moment that is, what does that mean? Oh, there, you don't have an English word for it. That is such a, a big boy move from a, it, from a, another country. He's like, well, you, I can't translate this because your your simple language doesn't have a fucking direct translation. It, I have had that said to me at a few times, to which it never fails to me as the American tourist to piss me off. It's it like, makes me angry try. too. I just try. There's words. Like, what the fuck? Damn, you don't have to give me one word explanation. Give me three paragraphs. I asked you the question. I'm here for it. Hard he tries. We don't have a word for it. Yes, we don't. Like what? He expresses there's no direct English translation, he thinks, but it means cozy, like a warm fire. But something in your mind, you know, your heart, your soul, the people you're with, the places you go. It's even this moment right here, right now. It is that. And they agree. And she expresses the world herself, understanding it a bit better for the first time. They share a bit of a moment, actually. 
maybe could have been a little bit more in this given moment. But at this mo, at this exact second, our dryer goes off. Three hours having been completed. Desiring desperately to ruin their fun. They go over, they ponder their night evening, but Rebecca, who is in at this point, elects to instead grab her drink and what I what was one of the more chuckle moments for me in the, in the episode, just tosses it right into the open dryer. So she tossed the water that he said, because she's drinking like kind of yeah. a lot. And he's like, do you want some water to kind of like slow this down? So she he, she gets water and then she just gets, she doesn't toss the wine. She tosses water I, in there I actually so she thought can it was keep her drink drinking that wine. she tosses in there. Yeah, she tosses the water so she can keep drinking the wine, which is a sort of funny, it, it, funny thing. Hey, you know the movie Titanic? I'm familiar, yes. Yeah, do you know that when they filmed Titanic, they made the movie exactly as long as it took for the the ship to actually sink. You know, like it was real time in the movie. I like, did not know that actually. That's, yeah, that, so as you James as, Cameron would do that shit. So when it hits the iceberg, by the time you see it on screen actually sink, that's the amount of time it took the Titanic to sink. Did you know that in the filming of this, they actually spent the entire three hours it, it takes for the for the, the laundry? Did you know they did that? <laughs> Felt like it. Yeah, do you know it was the full three hours? It was interesting. Th- things I learned. They continue with their fun. However, uh, their night was mixed with, uh, with bits of drinks, lovely food, uh, what appeared to be very technically sound foot massages. With Rebecca ultimately falling asleep, I think maybe perhaps earlier than she intended, um, but with what appears to be a feeling of absolute comfort. I think exactly. she has discovered the concept that she did not know before this evening. She wakes up, and though things at this moment are a little bit awkward, because she doesn't remember exactly how the night ended, she simply asks a a two-word question to the fellow, Mr. McDreamy. I'm going to call him Mr., because he deserves it. Okay. Did we? Question mark. He answers no. Seems to struggle with a little bit when he answers no. And she moves to head off, thanking him and saying that she won't forget him. Notably not sharing names, addresses, phone numbers... Nothing. They like to go full before sunrise. I advise everyone never go before before sunrise. That's just asking for problems. She. What do you mean by that? Go full before sunrise. What do you mean by that? There's a wonderful film before sunrise. It's part of a three episode series by uh, Linklater. That it's great, but it's a film that goes heavily into the concept of people trying to be romantic by not sharing basic contact information, and the sequels go into what a horrible idea that can be. Strongly recommend to our listeners if they've never watched it. It's a great film series. Uh, she comments, you know, said that she's going to remember him forever. He jokes that Alzheimer's might interfere with that, but, you know, possible. But as she leaves, he somewhat wistfully notes that although they didn't, they, most, they, they, all, they also most certainly did, answering a different question, but perhaps one much more meaningful to them both. We'll return to that here in a bit, because meanwhile, Ted and Beard, sir? Ted and Beard, uh, Beard, Beard, all-time friend. He's such a good friend. All-timer. Best friend ever. They start their story talking about, uh, and this is, I'm sure, something you know more about than I do, uh, Jordan refusing to wear Reeboks at the 92 Olympics. Yeah. Uh, versus jo- yeah, he did. Krujif refusing to wear Adidas at the 74 World Cup. This is something that actually happened? Both of those things really happened. I can talk more about Jordan uh, with the 92 Olympics and the Sports Center Top 10, but I will say... Here's the thing. Here's a trope I don't like. Go on. Is when someone will go, oh, you know, like uh, the Super Bowl, like, well, the f- 
four billion more people watch the World Cup, so the Super Bowl is actually super small. And it's like, like they they do this comparison to soccer, the and, then they, and then they try to like diminish the other. It's like no, like. What happened in the 92 Olympics with the Dream Team was really important. It was the biggest thing that happened in that Olympics. Basketball is an important big sport. Yes, soccer is bigger. We got that. We know that. It just seems like a, it, it, it seems like people people throw that out like in an attempt to like blow your mind. And it's like, you're not shocking anybody. We all know that the rest of the world watches soccer. It's much more popular. You know, anyway. So it seemed like Beard was going that that trope with that joke. So you don't you don't agree with Beard's summary that um, Khrushchev was like Jordan and John Lennon combined in terms of relative importance? I mean, I know that soccer is a lot more a lot, lot lot bigger. A lot more people watch it. So anyway, yeah, great. Well, uh, Ted and what is easily the most Ted moment ever what, suggests they go out for food, and he recommends that they first check out the Yankee Doodle Burger Barn, an authentic American dining experience with American sized portions. So we have a friend, BJ, who is on the Mango Talks podcast network. You do a podcast with him called Pottering Around, where it's chapter by chapter reread of Harry Potter. This is the exact conversation I've had with BJ many times. When we're getting ready to go out to dinner. I'll say, hey, I want to do this restaurant. And he'll say, what's the review? And you say two point whatever. <laughs> and then he goes, ah, I could do better. Let, let me let me translate for Beard here. Beard Please. never wanted to go to Yankee Doodle Dandy. Absolutely he heard not. that. He thought Wouldn't it was a terrible idea. <laughs> Never wanted to go. So he leans on the ratings to say, I think we can do better. Beard, Beard wasn't going to Yankee Doodle. Not it, unless Ted really insisted. Admittedly, with its 2.7, it does have a significantly lower Google score than the local Denny's next to me that's underneath an overpass. So it doesn't sound necessarily great from at least the local view. But that Denny's is good. Denny's is always good. Maybe not so much the one that's under the underpass, but, you know, you're, you're getting what you want. Grand slam. Ah. Uh, Ted comments that he doesn't know what's going on with him, though, in a moment of, you know, vulnerability and honesty between friends, that he feels stuck or something, that he needs to do something to get out of his own head, like get punched in the face or drink a couple bottles of red wine or yell at his mom. Dear Christ, Ted, keep it in. Yes, Ted, you are stuck. We've been saying that on this podcast. Whole season, multiple seasons. What? You just lost 5-0 in a friendly to a probably inferior team. Ted, yes, you're stuck. Do something. Well, he wants to try something new, something to help him get inspired. And Beard will say connoisseur on the subject of how he's choosing to interpret Ted's words, has been waiting for this green light for years. Because he's got some stuff that he got from Kenneth. You remember Kenneth, our Toad Venom uh, bus driver from earlier? I don't like to pay taxes for my medicine. I love that line from Beard. I can picture Beard saying that. Uh, I did hear Beard say that. He's got he's got the supply from earlier. He's got an idea, and as you as you noted, ex- explain for audience what kind of thing has Beard gotten? What kind of what, what kind of uh, concoction does he make for Ted? Psychosyllab, I think that's how you pronounce it. Mushrooms. Mm-hmm. This when you hear people say the word shroom, where they're talking about a drug that you yeah. trip. Uh, this is this is it, and what he's doing is he's brewing the mushrooms in a tea. He's using just the mushrooms as if it was a tea bag and he's making tea, hot tea out of it. Now, a lot of people say they, they, they trip from mushrooms. I don't mean to, I mean, if you, you think you did, then you did great. But it always seems to me like we use the word trip to describe mushrooms and we use the word trip to describe acid Mm -hmm. LSD. Different experience. 
It seems to me like a yet again, just like Gazelig, a limitation of the English language. That we only have one word for these two experiences, for but they're second. vastly different. This is a glass of red wine versus a bottle and a half of vodka. Like it, it's just very different experiences. So this is this is a lighter touch than mm-hmm. if you you hearken back to the days of say I don't know the original Woodstock when people were just out of their mind, you know, seeing colors and everything's a cartoon and they're just nuts for two or three days, naked, wandering around, doing all these streets. That's acid. This is a bit of a lighter touch. What Beard is proposing here. It is a lighter touch. I would strongly recommend for people that are doing it for the first time, though. Have a safe environment. Have a calm place. Have various things to be able to control your environment for doing it. And particularly have somebody there to watch you or mind you. A good friend. A beard, perhaps. To be able to guide you through your first experience. Ted's, uh, I think, fair to say, kind of uncomfortable with this. Having been nothing more than a beer and Sour Patch Kids kind of guy. I mean, Sour Patch Kids is kind of the hard stuff when it comes to candy, though. Uh, but Beard encourages him that, you know, a hallucinogen like this that he's preparing will literally form new pathways in his brain, expressing it as picture a sheet of fresh white snow covering all the footsteps of all the paths that you've trod on before, forcing you, nay, encouraging you to begin anew. Can I question, ask you a question, a legal Please. question, very important legal question here? Go on. Um, I just need to know if something is false advertising or not. You know, they call Sour Patch Kids Sour Patch Kids. They're sour for 10 seconds. They're sweet. The rest of the time, they're in your mouth. It's How like can they call them? What the fuck? They, 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 it's like it's it's sour for one-tenth of the time. It's sweet. This seems to me to be false advertising. Sir, can I can I sue the distributors of Sour Patch Sa- Kids? Sour Man, they don't say it's Sour Patch 22nd Kids. They're, you're getting a taste of sour, and that's rare and unique enough when it comes to candy. How many sour candies do you get on the main aisle of a, of a grocery store anyway? Not the main aisle, but when you when you go off the beaten path, there's quite a number. I do like a sour candy. It just seems like a little bit, you know, misleading. It, misleading, but not in any way uh, creating liability, I'm afraid. Shout out to Sour Catch Kids. They are good. Misnamed, good. Complain to the Better Business Bureau. Go someplace I will. I shall. I'll put a Google review on it. <laughs> Don't knock them down to a 2.7. They deserve better than 2.7. Uh, Ted, uh, you know, hears this, notes that Beard is elected to give him something he's already uncomfortable with in something else that he despises, tea, which he compares to hiding poop inside of a smoothie of barf. His reaction, you know, Jason Sudeikis, I think, has become more serious as an actor over time. The Ted character has more, more serious. Um but he still has some comedic timing because when he proposes tea, the look on his face was so repulsed. It made me laugh because we made this. We we talk. I mean, we do the segment tea time with Lee, where the whole basis of it is the joke that Ted hates tea. He really does a great callback to that with that sort of repulsed look. Uh, shout out! That was that was very funny. And I did say uh, the actor's name there, Jason Sudeikis. Uh, Beard still invites him to trust him, though Ted hesitates while Beard just downs his one quick gulp. Mm. Probably wise. Mm. It apparently tastes mm. horrible. Uh, with a decidedly different now state of mind, hoping or pending, Beard tries to hang around for a minute before he pieces out for his own adventures. Ted mm-hmm. says to stay home behind and watch TV, but uh, keeps glancing over at that tea that's just sitting there right there next to him, untouched, opening possibly new worlds or pathways or a way forward from the muck that he's stuck in. After about two or three glances down at this, Ted... Stare, uh, elects to instead chug about more than half of it and head out for himself. Mm-hmm. 
He stumbles forward and ends up in that famous Vincent Van Gogh Museum. Does the museum have a name or is it just the Vincent Van Gogh Museum? It's the Van Gogh Museum. There we go. Where one of the employees there notes as Ted stares off in the middle distance of the painting that one doesn't expect to get from life, which well, what one has already learned it cannot give. Rather, one begins to see that life is a kind of sowing time and that the harvest is not yet here. Noting that Van Gogh was just a humble preacher's son, and yet, yes, he had his demons, but they never stopped him from searching for beauty, because when you find beauty, you find inspiration. If that is, you stay as determined as Vincent. Never stop, no matter how many failures. And when you know what you're doing, what you're meant to do, you have to try. Ted's kind of staring off into the middle distance at this uh, sun, famous sunflower fading by Vincent Van Gogh while this is being said, but he does He's seem He's placebo like, high. As we find out later, yes. He's placebo high. It's his first experience. He doesn't know what to expect. He seems legitimately either moved by the painting or the words or some combination thereof. But Ted being Ted, what he says out loud is just to compare the painting to the Kansas State flower and thank the guy with... Does he literally say mercy buckets to the guy? Mercy buckets. Yeah, okay. it's the... Well, Spencer, just... He's, I know I know you took a different language. I did take French uh, in college. I'm, I'm um, partially fluent. I think they would call it... I think they would call it quarter fluent. Mm-hmm. Mercy buckets means thank you in French. Uh, he's going for merci beaucoup. Uh, no, which, mercy buckets. Thank you. I, I, I misunderstand. Well, just question. He's still in Holland, right? He's still in the Netherlands, right? <laughs> yep. That's why this is so great. Why did he, fuck, he go for course, French? <laughs> of course he fucks up merci beaucoup. And mercy buckets is a really funny way to say it. But in fact, Not he's even the pulling right it out. Pulling it out in Amsterdam is wonderful. I mean... <laughs> Maybe even closer to Belgium, you know, you could have gone with Flemish as a connection, maybe. But, you know, this isn't even close. But Ted is, is a, an attempt. It, Ted is a circle in a square peg type of guy. He's saying, he's saying merci beaucoup, some version of it, yeah. in in Amsterdam. And he is instituting the triangle offense in soccer. <laughs> Man's trying. Man's circle, trying. square peg. Uh, he decided to go to some place maybe where he feels more comfortable. He heads to the Yankee Doodle Burger Barn. Which hey, is, y'all. How y'all doing? It, it is legitimately every horror we assumed oh. it would be. Including, I love this little touch that the waiter is from, from Australia. Does the entire young population of Australia just travel the world being waiters in other countries? Is that just what they do? I guess that's the joke. I will say, I think these places are for expats who have been yeah. away from home for long enough mm-hmm. that this type of nostalgia actually works. I think if you've been away from home for a, half a week, Mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that that's your place. I, it also it it does seem to be the very worst of America, right? It's like it's playing on every trope. And then it's like the um, just nothing but like brown baskets of fried food. Like American food is better than just fried potatoes. <laughs> we, we, we do a little bit better than that, but that that's what they're giving us. I, there's a menu. Ted's the one that elects to order the. What was it? Massive pyramid plate of onion rings with a side of freedom fries. Of course, they call them freedom fries. Which uh, sauce would you like? He asks just for whatever she would recommend, and she brings him, notably, some barbecue sauce. Arthur Bryant's, which we previously have seen before on the show. It is a real barbecue sauce. This is the one that he was sent back in season two that he called the best in the world, which had him always be able to teleport back home wherever he was. Appropriate that it shows up at this moment. Adding to that feeling of nostalgia connection back, there's an old Bulls game playing on the TV, one that he watched with his dad many years ago. With the announcer... Uh, didn't we on, all, if we were alive back then? That was a big one. I, more, more on that in the Sports Center Top 10. Make, making a note of it. 
Uh, he also he comments this one that he watched with his dad many years ago, with the announcer also pointedly commenting on the importance of triangles in play, supporting each other like a pyramid. All of this is adding in to the kind of psychedelic feel that Ted assumes he's going through, but the episode most certainly is deciding to explore, of where maybe from the mushrooms, maybe not. Maybe Ted got the one good dose. Who's can say? No. He's just purely in his own head, purely psychosomatic. Yeah, that's what, like, the most people who take mushrooms do this. Like, mushrooms is a, not a, it's a real light, it's not a heavy drug. It re- I, like, I'm, I, I speak from experience. It's not a very heavy drug. But people have it in their head they're going to trip, and sometimes it's more powerful than the tripping itself. Now, unless you're on fucking some heavy LSD, and then you're just out of your, you're whacked out of your Gone. mind. But, yeah, I do think, I think that they're making a joke a little bit about mushrooms here, about how people do the the placebo effect a lot with that drug. Well, the surreal moments start regardless of their cause. Hey, I have a question for you. The surreal moment, did that remind you of anything you'd seen before? Uh, it reminded me of like those old educational films from the 50s or parodies of those educational films from the pit, from the 50s. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's a specific type of... Uh, my notes are all fucked because the way we're doing this podcast, I will look here, it up. Here to help. Um, uh, I'll look it up. It's a... Sarah, my wife pointed this out that it is a very specific Donald Duck cartoon. Interesting. From the the early nineties that I will, I will tell you the name of here in a second. And she nailed it. It's exactly what this is. I will point this out here in a second. Okay. Well, while while you're doing that, Nate starts to see things, which are obviously not there. He sees Nate in the form of one of the waiters because Nate's regardless of what he says, first and foremost in his head right now. And also, the narrator on the Bulls game starts to become a little bit more omnipresent. It seems like it's no longer actually talking about what was in the game, but more thoughts that are in his own head. And then, like in the style of Donald Duck or old-style educational films, the world fades away. He is transported elsewhere into some surreal parallel universe, one very much focused on the subject of triangles and their special powers. And he is greeted by what labels itself the true spirit of adventure. Uh, Ted, being Ted, just simply responds to this, you know, transportation through wormholes by saying, well, what's shaking, TSA? Donald in math magic land. I I think I've seen that before. Yes, I hadn't hadn't thought about that, but good call. Uh, They go into this. The true spirit of adventure goes very much into the subject of triangles, what they are, where they come from, how they originally originated with Pythagoras. Various theorems that have gone from there, where they've flown through the Holy Trinity and the, and the various aspects of Buddhism. Uh, Ted contributing at various moments, but, you know, things in the back of dollar bills, uh, apologizing for damage done to Native American cultures. But then focusing in about, you know, Tex Winter, assistant coach for the Chicago Bulls, and instituting the triangle offense and it being a central component of a player always being available to help two teammates adjusting and moving around the court, always forming various triangles in combination at any given moment. Ted's so people say people say that Pythagorean invented the triangle. That you you so first off we know that's not true. So then I've also heard discovered. You don't you discover an island that no one's ever been before? We all like the triangles were there. He just was the one that just gave it a name and said, hey this is probably really important. He assigned math to them. That's effectively what he's doing. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, I don't know. We kind of toned down the the discovered triangles thing. Pretty sure that was that was whatever supreme being created the birth or let, whatever. Let the let the man have this, sir. What okay. else do we remember? With that 
Yeah, I, I am kind of like throwing shade on Pythagorean. Sorry, Pythagorean fans. <laughs> don't worry. They'll, they'll, they'll forgive you somehow someday. Uh, Ted's, worry. Ted isn't utterly inspired by this possible you know, use of triangles in terms of their gameplay and returns from his trip, whether we want to call it that or not. Sorry, I've got no other word laid to sign it than a trip. Yep. Limitation of the English language, because I like uh, Grabs a pen from a waiter and sets out working for seemingly hours, drawing up strategies and plays, all built around this logic. But the server's seemingly amused but worried that Derek, because what apparently in the Ted Lasso universe, all managers for all restaurants are named Derek, I guess that's an in-joke for the show, uh, will be annoyed about the fact that his pen has been pil- pilfered. Uh, did you also uh, make a note of what uh, the birthday song they sing at the Yankee Doodle Burger Barn is? I'm sure it's in my notes somewhere. What is it? Uh, uh, Yankee Doodle Bur- Birther Barn, Happy Birthday. Yankee Doodle Burger Barn, Happy Birthday. Uh, World War II was won by America, but yes. the West was liberated thanks to Canada. Canada, yeah, that was... <laughs> little, like you could tell, you, you could imagine like the American tourists. Like, what? What was that? What? Yeah. What did you say? What did you say? Uh, Milo, let's, let's, let's discuss what Isaac and gang are doing. The team. Okay. Uh, they are doing what you always love to do. They are struggling with the concept of democracy, hindered by the rules that Isaac is trying to enforce for the vote as to how they should spend their free night. Has to be unanimous. Uh, that causes problems later, just as it does in democracy in other various moments. Uh, Richard wants to, sp- wants to spend the night taking a train to Paris. Van Damme wants to go to a live sex show. Jan Maas thinks they should go to a <laughs> private all-night party outside of town with breakfast. With breakfast. Don't forget about the damn breakfast part. Uh, which is outside the normal touristy beaten path. Sam wants to either go on a boat tour or stay in for a movie night. Bumbercatch wants to be a special observer at the Hague International Court of Justice. And Danny wants to see a poppy. Just one, because more than one might be overwhelming for him. Trent also suggests that maybe they should make use of the, of the museum night, which is actively going on, but that one's quickly shot down. Lee, I ask you, of the various proposals that we get here, ignore the ones they actually vote on, which one would you have seized upon if it had been your ch- opportunity to vote? I'll tell you, as somebody who doesn't drink, they all sound pretty exhausting. Um, yeah. <laughs> I would probably go with whatever Colin was doing. I'd just go off with Colin. Um, because it just seems like if these guys want to party till late. Um, maybe maybe enjoy, spend some time with Sam. I'm going to I'm gonna say, I, nope, I've got one. Tulip. Tul- tulip. A, a single tulip? Tulip, tulip. Would you go best. to a full tulip field? Would you make Danny go to a full tulip field? Absolutely, he would be overwhelmed. I'd have to, I'd have to talk to talk him <laughs> through it, like he's he, tripping on mushrooms. I say, that, he yeah, needs a that, When I was drinking, the concept of the late night party with the hearty breakfast at the end—that's really fucking solid. That's a that's the a, breakfast that's is a, good a great one. touch. The breakfast is a great touch there. Um, yeah, the live sex shows—they they have that the, the red light district. I didn't go to those. Everybody I've known who has ever gone to them say that it sounds like a better idea than it is. You get there, you get uncomfortable. Everybody normally leaves. Um, I don't know. Uh, I I do think that there was probably a measure of an inside joke for locals about the they're very tired people. Like mm-hmm. with the when the waiters or the waitresses were telling them like you can watch two exhausted people have sex or, or... you can do. You know what normal people do, which is just go out to a nightclub. Well, like you mentioned, Colin elects to just, despite the fact that Isaac declares the entire team team is going to do this, Colin is allowed to instead piece off to do his own thing by claiming that he's got stomach pains, which they all accept and allow him, allow him to go off. To which he sneaks out for another plot line we'll address here in a minute. Soon as he says that, you, Trent's head Trent. pops right up. 
which we've been talking about whether they would go the route of Trent being gay for a while. I, we, they have been having him dress. Didn't you call more out more code shifting for a while? Didn't yeah, you call a out rainbow the, mug. the rainbow mug? I thought that was a good a good little breadcrumb. Perhaps because he's Amsterdam, he's also dressing a little bit, we'll say, more loud this episode, too, with what appears to be a cravat and, I think, leopard shoes as well as, as he heads out onto the town. Fucking crushing it. Trent they, is killing it. They, they've been giving us more signs for a while, and I think they, they emphasize them here, which is appropriate for the plot line that comes. But meanwhile, sure. Isaac asks the waitresses that they can bring some napkins so they can do a vote, which in the initial round comes down to nine for sex show, nine for private party with Jan Moss's cousin, and one for Tulip. In Spanish. I wonder who it could be. Could have been anyone. Uh, further hindering things, Isaac, as you said, demands that the vote be unanimous and that they all have to do everything together. Now, I, Isaac, I understand your logic. I understand your value. I also understand that if I'd been present in this room, I at some point would have just walked away. Because <laughs> it seems like they spent a solid two hours trying to make this vote happen. Uh, but isn't that the, the ham-handed point that the writers are making? That, you know, this sort of team unity is really hard and it's ugly, difficult, dirty work. But at the end, you get something glorious and fun at, and great. At the end, at the end, all teamwork results in giant pillow fights. I've they learned needed, this throughout they my had, life. They had hard, difficult work to do as a unit to come together. I mean, I think that's what they're going for. This is obviously what they're going for. Yes, this is. As you said, it's not subtle what they're going for here. It's an element of symbology attached to it, but they're, they're being on the nose what the objective of this particular plot line is. For sure. Uh, now, Isaac solicits the advice from the waitresses on the, what these sex shows are actually like, which is you said the waitresses, in what feels like an in-joke to what the Dutch would respond, comment that, eh, you know, you can see tired, depressed people having sex, or you can go to a party outside of town where you actually can hook up with people and have sex. Options! This unites the room on the, on the idea of going to the private party, Tulips Be Damned. But then they go into questions on the subject of food. What they'll eat before they go X. Of course, they've got to eat. Maybe there's Mexican in town. Who knows? Uh, which, again, just throws them into horrendous debate. Finally, frustrated by the lack of compromise, Isaac, invoking executive cloture powers, declares, How doth we channel this lack of compromise, this dissension, this rage? His answer is apparently massive pillow fight, with the waitresses looking unamused, the other guests running for cover, and me being baffled by the silliness of the show, but glad everybody's having fun. Yeah, it's a pretty how one... silly, pretty silly yeah, resolution to that. It kind of reminded me of the community episode, the pillow fight community episode, sure. uh, a little bit, where they, uh, they, take, they take pillow fighting super seriously in that episode, and they kind of they, they did a little, little wink tip of the hat to that. I... I yeah, it's a that's a pretty silly moment for sure. I mean, if, if one of them had showed up dressed like you know the freaking Michelin Man uh, with you know a full pillow costume and pillowed helmet, I would have been more impressed. But we don't see that this episode, unlike in Community. While they're doing that, Colin has said heads off on his own, having snuck out from his team dressed in a hoodie, and arriving at the very appropriately named and styled gay bar, Prick. Doesn't Colin blame it on pickled fish or something? Uh, yes, he had pickled herring. A whole, a, 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 that's what he claims to have had, which everyone immediately just hears that and goes, we're sorry, hope you feel better. Hmm, I like pickled herring. I don't, but I'm glad you do. Glad some people do in the world. Uh, 
They ask, well, he asks, he orders a drink. They somehow don't have vanilla vodka. He should have left right there. An entirely inadequate establishment. And he instead goes with a beer. Uh, he confirms that the bartender doesn't know who he is, the importance of anonymity for him to be able to enjoy his night, and actually just invites him to enjoy their Thunderdong party later. I wasn't uh, sure that the I wasn't sure that the bartender didn't know him. I was sure that the bartender wasn't going to make a thing of knowing him. But it, it, I'm sure for for establishment like that, having a certain measure of anonymity is something that certain members of their patrons appreciate. So for sure, for sure, discretion would be a well trained aspect of the staff. Uh Colin seems excited. He's going to be able to enjoy himself for a single evening, just in time for Trent to walk up, who, as said, has been looking quite fabulous himself this evening, having also followed Colin since he left the hotel. Dum, dum, Colin, dum. Colin, as they say, straightens up immediately uh, and yeah. moves to head yeah. out. I'm here for the jokes. Uh, Trent follows him and reassures him that he already knew. He's known for, he's known for months. And they must have a good reason for knowing for months, but not telling anyone, right? Maybe just because he's just not an asshole. But he focuses in on the fact that he knows exactly what Colin's going through. He's gay as well. In fact, he had to come out to his wife twice to get her to accept the idea that he was gay. But he, but, but it, he, but he, but he doesn't know exactly. That, that's the point he's making, right? Is that well, he doesn't he, know exactly. He has a common thread. He doesn't know the precise example of being a player that's going through this, but he knows. The feeling of being closeted and that process of coming out with respect to it. And in his case, he's offering it as a story that how much better his life has been since he was able to do that. Sure. Right? He, he, yeah, he has a coming out story, right? And he can connect with him. But I think I think he connects with Colin because he admits. I was able hey, to man, do so. I, yeah, and I, I don't know what this is like for somebody in your position you know, being publicly known, famous, et cetera, how, how difficult that must be. I felt like acknowledging that was pretty important for Colin because then Colin goes on to talk about his two lives and how he's hiding it and how difficult that's been. Yeah, it, it provides a point by which you can have a sympathetic connection so that they can have this conversation. Like you said, Colin expresses that, you know, he's struggling with this. He's struggling with the idea of having to keep this secret, wondering whether the club would be okay with it, how rough it is in the dating scene being closeted and, how he doesn't want to be a spokesperson or get a bunch of apologies. He just wants to be able to live openly without the ache, the same way the other guys do, without having to pretend. Yes, Trent, Trent even knows that, you know, he's gay. To which Trent notes his Holmesian powers of journalistic deduction that he saw Colin making out, making out, making out outside of Sam's club, or Sam's uh, restaurant. Um, he notes, more than a little bit on the nose appropriately, that the bells they're hearing as they're having this conversation are the same that Anne Frank heard nightly during her own captivity. On the nose, it said. But rather than ruminate on that, though, they decide to hit the club together and enjoy a boisterous, fun night to themselves. Yeah, they have a good time, it seems like. Mm-hmm. We, and I think he fought, does he finally find vanilla vodka? Is that what the shot is that he gives yes, to? Yes, he finally does. I have a hard time believing that all these clubs didn't have vanilla vodka, but at least he's finally able to get it. Yeah, I think the guy. I think maybe the bartender was making fun of him when he first asked for it because Very they clearly so, yes. had it, and then he gives it to Trent. Trent doesn't like it, and then Colin bangs it home. Uh, meanwhile, first ones we referenced, last ones we're exploring: Higgins and Will. Woo, Hickey Bottoms. Uh, they arrive in the red light district with Will still confused as all hell what they're about to do, but in for it for the time being. But instead of making use of what many people enjoy the red light district for, they come up to a statue of Chet Baker. An American, gifted trumpeter, unique singer, and heroin addict, who was tortured by his demons but didn't stop him from making beautiful music, as Higgins explains. And in fact, he's the reason that Higgins got into jazz, and they're here to pay respects to the legend. 
Because this is the spot in 1988 where he died falling from a window under uncertain circumstances. I think Higgins oversells this a little bit. I don't think anyone really suspects foul play here, at least not that I was able to read online. But he was found dead out uh, on the ground below his two-story apart- uh, hotel he was staying in. He's fucked up and he jumped. He, he either jumped or he fell, seems to be the story. So one of the stories I was hearing was that he was probably locked out. And so tried to go on the balcony to get in through a window and fell in the process. Hmm. Uh, Higgins comments that, you know, the main story, you can, get a lot of, you can get a lot of stories from this, including his inspiration for getting into jazz. You also can get with absolute certainty the idea that drugs are bad. Other than, you know, comedy cutting right to Ted and Beard at that moment when they're going through that process of having that conversation. At the jazz club, though, later, Will has set them up front, which is a choice that I would not do. Higgins expresses the same concerns I have about sitting front in a jazz club, but it's a choice. Better, you're better off sitting up front for that than you would be at an improv club the way Will did previously. But they've made their seating. Will's mostly making eyes with a kissing couple in the corner, while Higgins comments that, thank you for doing this, Will. One pilgrim alone is merely a zealot, but two pilgrims together, (coughs) that's a pilgrimage. For the night, they enjoy some lovely jazz at what apparently is the Jazz Cafe Alto with Cartel playing, where sometime later, Higgins is actually called up on stage to play bass, as as you commented, showing off cast talent right here. He's nervous, but he rises mightily to the occasion with this very successful rendition of Let's Get Lost, with Will making even more eyes with that couple from earlier. Now, sir, you can come back to your notes, because I'm now returning to a common point thread. The next morning. The next morning, all of our separate plots finally come back together. Will was outside the bus, excitedly telling his mom about his night, in seemingly excruciatingly, you know, specific detail, which good for them that they've got that kind of relationship to discuss the idea he got invited to a threesome. We don't hear whether he accepted, which conversation gets cut off at that point to find out. You had to bet what he said. Did Will accept? Not accept. Did not accept. What do you think? 60-40 didn't accept. Pretty close call, though. Yeah, I think there's a chance. I mean, he okay. certainly thought that he was making eyes at the woman all night. I don't, I don't know if he was interested in threesome, but he was, he was certainly interested in the woman. Yeah. Uh, Beard returns in what I believe they referred to as Piggy Stardust. Piggy Stardust! <laughs> Which is a wonderful way of expressing that. Piggy I mean, played guitar. Okay, a question uh, in terms of your bets. Uh, what are the odds that upon realizing the mushrooms didn't work that Beard found alternative means of exploration? Uh, well, you know, I think that might be 70, 30 that he did. I think, I do think Beard's capable of having a night like this sober, but I think he probably did search for something else. As we saw in Beard After Night, uh, Beard After Dark, the man's willing to find, you know, hallucinogenics to enjoy the evening. For sure. This is in character form. They create uh, new pathways. Indeed. He also reveals that he speaks Dutch fluently, but don't tell Jan. Don't tell Jan. That was one of my favorite little I'd parts l- of the episode, that he didn't want Jan to know he, he spoke Dutch. I, 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 this is the, in the data points I wish I had known earlier because now I have to go back and rewatch moments to see when Beard may have been listening in. Uh, Ted is already on the bus though and apologizes for leaving Beard alone high in the night. Uh, though Beard notes that the tea was a bust. They talked with Kenneth and Kenneth confirmed it was a bad batch, leaving Ted more than moderately confused as to what the hell drove his evening, other than the power of the human mind. Yep. Ted reveals, though, that he has come up with a new strategy. Is this anything? 
Yeah, yes, is this anything? Because the way I see it, we've been playing too rigid, you know? Our guys need freedom. Go wherever they want to go. Follow their guts, their hearts. As long as they remember to fill in the space that somebody else left behind. they got to have one another's backs, that's for sure. But, you know, just a constant, non-stop motion. Just going from position to position until positions don't really even exist anymore. Fast, fluid, free, with full support. Beard congratulates him on independently inventing total total football. Triangles. Tri-angles. tri Try angels, try angels, try, try angels, try angels. Gotta love Ted. He, re- he reaches the conclusion you want to get to. Uh, Beard credits this invention to the Dutch in the 1970s. We can talk on SportsCenter's Top 10. It's also probably a little bit earlier, too. But agrees that they should give it a go. Rebecca enters with Ted checking on her because he, compliments to your ship, sir, has been texting her all night without response. Perhaps worried about her. He unhahad three of his ha-has he was so upset with her utterly offended she left him she left him in the are lurch. we good when he texts her hey bought like when when he has a free night and the very first thing he does is say text rebecca hey what you doing do you want to hang out and then te- we see him text her again it's like i don't know if this will be reciprocated but i do think ted is interested he certainly is showing several of the signs of such she seems utterly carefree to the world and just notes that her phone is at the bottom of a canal, which, despite Ted's thoughts, is not Keats. <laughs> Ted and Beard share a one-side confused, one-side knowing look at each other. Uh, but before they set out, Will notes that they are too short just at the, for just at this moment for Jamie and Roy to return, riding now one bicycle that is left for them. You lovely people! Uh, did you note that ju- they arrive just in time to also have that same bike thief steal that bicycle back when they leave it alone? Yep, yep. I got, I got a good run. Yeah, you, you made some serious money tonight. He's getting his research, getting his resources back. We saw ex- windmills. They're excited. They've happily reunited. And to finish off what is a decidedly odd episode of television or maybe TV movie based on these credits. The show allows to have everyone sing the chorus from Three Little Birds by Bob Marley. Every little thing is going to be all right. Question for you. Did you know it was called Three Little Birds or did you think it was called Don't Worry About a Thing? I did know it was called Three Little Birds. For the, the only reason being is that I looked it up a few years ago and found out that it totally was not called what I thought it was called. Yeah, most everybody thinks it's called Don't Worry About a Thing. It's called Three Little Birds, parentheses, Don't Worry About a Thing, because of the one and only verse in the song about Three Little Birds. Land on my doorstep singing sweet songs. A melody is pure and true. This the, is my message for you. Hoo hoo. The, the title may not be memorable, but good God is the chorus. Don't even worry about a thing. Uh, Beard invites us in more than a few sing-alongs of this, and we are greeted by his said movie-style credits, which he very similar to what we got for both Beard After Dark and the Christmas episode. Did you, right. did you notice there appeared to be jokes in the actual cast list as we were scrolling through it too? I did, yeah. God is herself. Question for you. Um, do you think... So, last 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 season, Apple Plus told them, you gotta do 12 episodes. Yeah. They had written 10. They threw in Beard After Dark in the Christmas episode. Do you think we're getting the same thing here? That there are 10 relatively linear episodes and two insular episodes? I... Yes, but I think they're better planned and better worked into it. The biggest, pro- I actually, I think I actually even liked the um, the two one-off episodes better than you did. But the complaint I think we both absolutely shared is that they shattered the flow of the season because they weren't connected into the plot that well. They weren't connected to where the characters were. This one is not at all that. 
it's insular, it's very long, it addresses a lot of different plot lines, but most of those plot lines are moving forward. I, I can't imagine them not having planned the season around this episode, because so much forward momentum and necessary progress in their character arcs happens in this episode. Like you said, nobody leaves this episode unchanged, particularly on on the path they were walking up until this point. So For sure, for sure. Is it an insular episode? Yes. Is it something that they ordered after the fact? If so, they rewrote the entire season to accommodate it. Da, 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 da. And so we, we have reached, sir, the end of our recap. Sorry for throwing a bit of a change up in terms of the process of going through it. We uh, have reached the end of the recap. I think it is time for Sports Center Top 10, where we talk about 10 things on the nose every week. 10, not 9, not 11, not 8, not 12. Things that we thought were interesting deserve more discussion about the episode. Spencer, which first one? I open with a question. Mm. We had, as you said, a whole mass of different plot lines. One, two, three, four, five, six that we got to see. Seven that you didn't get to see. Which was your favorite and why? Hmm. My favorite plot line... Part of the reason I wanted to tell them in joint little segments is that they could be more easily unpacked on their own merits. Uh, yeah, that fine. That's fine. It would just... If I'd have known, I could have been a little bit more prepared. I, I think my favorite one, and it's not close, uh, far and away, is Roy and Jamie. Is it purely just because of how much you love Roy and Jamie's friendship, or was it something unique about what the, how it was presented? Well, I think it was presented really well because I think that this new version of Jamie, like I mentioned before, feels earned. It feels like um, it doesn't feel like all of a sudden now Nate's come out of the phone booth and he's season one Nate again. It's like this guy has had a transition that I believe over time. I find him genuinely funny. The actor seems to be having a really good time with this version of Jamie, the over the top excited, the enthusiasm he's leaning into it is a lot of really funny body comedy that he's doing. Roy is at his best when he's defensive. That's when he's yeah. the funniest, when he's telling you fuck off and he's trying not to open up. I think that was one of the dangers of putting him in a relationship with Keely as we had to see this side of him that was a little bit less funny because he's always been this character that is reactive and really funny in that role. So the two of them together, it worked perfectly. I love the idea that they were honing in on the windmills and that these two guys were just riding around Fucking Amsterdam at all hours of night, not drunk, not high, just looking for windmills on bicycles is the coolest thing in the world that they, these guys were doing that to me. I thought I thought that that plot line was really, really good. My second favorite plot line um, would be Higgins. H Higgins. Higgins. I, I like I like the idea that he's that much of a jazz fan that he actually does a pilgrimage to a site like that. That's that's just so believable, relevant. It, it adds so much depth to his character. Uh, I think one of the complaints I could have about Ted Lasso is that some of the characters aren't particularly well developed. We know a few things about them, but we don't have backstory in the same way. Some we of them have. are kind of one note. <clears throat> like we have so much backstory with Jamie. We have so much backstory with Higgins. Both of these characters, I feel like I know and mm -hmm. I appreciated it. I would say my least favorite, um, far and away, would be Rebecca's. Really? Go on. Yeah. Well, it's too true. It's 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 too, a tad. It, mm -hmm. It's a touch boring. Um, mm. I kind of got it. Oh, okay. 
she's run into the perfect man and they're going to have a nice romantic night and he's going to be the absolute gentleman and it's going to be wonderful and she's going to come out of it reinvigorated and ready to date again. Got it. Cool. We didn't. I think they spent more screen time on Rebe- on Rebecca's plot line than any of the others. Um, so, and I felt like it deserved the least because it was a little bit more boring to me. But anyway, that's my opinion. What about you? I'm with you on my favorite. Uh, Trent and J- uh, not Trent, uh, Jamie and Roy, utterly charming, utterly delightful. Some some of the funniest laugh out loud moments and their friendship, their growth as characters, both individually and together, has been one of the most effective aspects of the show at every turn. So. Loved it, lived it. Would have, I, I wanted to spend more time with their adventure. Make that one a full movie. I'll, I'll, I'll be down for it completely. Please. Uh, least favorite for me, I think I'm a bit more forgiving of the Rebecca plotline. Uh, I think least favorite for me would probably be Isaac and Gang because it felt just very, it felt mathematic that about what its purpose was. That the purpose is for them to learn how to bond as a team, to find ways to, you know, jointly agree what they all can benefit from in some shape or form and the actual process of getting there it wasn't that interesting and a lot of it felt kind of forced so, so it I, seems like our we have for our least favorite plotline we have a similar complaint which is that oh i get what they're doing this is relatively simple mm-hmm. this, this could be done pretty quick it, it also just didn't it a lot of the players in particular strike me as some of the characters that have gotten particularly silly because Jamie's, as you said, has gotten well-rounded everything else. If anything, characters like Danny and Sam have gotten less well-rounded. And they've instead just become embodied along a single word describing who they are. And other characters that they've started to develop, it seems to just develop to be a similar, a, a single similar other thing. So having all the players in one room, I felt almost just highlighted that of just how few of the secondary characters that have been on the show have much to do other than to be one thing and represent that one thing rather than feel like well-rounded characters the way the other ones are. So that, gotcha. it brought down that plot line for me a bit. But as I said, most of them I found very much charming and had an important role in terms of get, getting the characters through or at least approaching through where they need to be as part of the uh, remaining four episode, remaining episodes of the season. Okay, well... Uh, so for me, Sports Center Top 10, I'll talk about Jordan in the 1992 Olympics. Uh, Jordan very famously was signed to Nike coming out of college. Jordan, well, we all know him as potentially the greatest basketball player ever, at least written the in the conversation. He did not come out of college with that title. Now, he, he was known to be very good, right? But he was drafted third overall, uh, very what, famously... What? What was his reputation at Carolina? I actually don't know the answer to that question. Uh, really talented scorer and and guy who could who could who could put the ball in the basket. Played really really hard, super competitive. But Dean Smith did not play a his college coach did not play a version of basketball where a guy could score forty points a game. Jordan, ah. I think, averaged his senior year something like eighteen or something. There's always the joke: the only person who could hold Jordan under twenty points a game was, was Dean, Dean Smith. Smith. Yeah, uh, so I believe that he. So because of that. People were uh, didn't quite know that the didn't offensive see the talent. That, well, didn't know the offensive talent he already had. When he got on the court, he immediately started started scoring 35, 40 points a game, and everybody was floored. But Nike saw like the, the scouts from Nike, which there's a there's a movie out right now, Ben Affleck, uh, Matt Damon movie about this right now. That's in the theaters. You can go see. They had scouted Jordan independently. 
and said, oh my God, he has a talent that we hadn't seen in college. We need to sign him. They signed him. He's one of their first big signees. They'd released the Jordan ones, extremely popular shoe. I've got a couple pair myself. They're a very, very good shoe. They go on to have the most lucrative partnership in shoe history with Jordan, the Jordan brand and Nike. Jordan was, to this day, he's extremely loyal to Nike for taking a chance on him at that, that age for being one of the first big companies to believe in him. So in the 1992 Olympics, when the uh, America Olympic team, so just USA, period, all athletes. Reebok were, bought the rights? Yes, were, uh, were sponsored by Reebok. Jordan said he would not wear the shoes. And that was part of the negotiations for him to join the Dream Team. Anyway, they got an exception for Jordan. Jordan was allowed to wear his own shoes. And then when they got to the medal ceremony, which, of course, they had won the goal, uh, the Jordan had the windbreaker on the USA 1992 Barcelona windbreaker on that sure. had the Reebok logo and he would not he didn't want that to be seen on television with him with it so what did he do he actually draped the American flag over that shoulder so he uh, took an American flag draped, draped it over the shoulder and that's how he hid the Reebok emblem when he got up on the podium and nobody ever saw Jordan and Reebok so if, you, if you ever if you ever find a picture of Jordan and Reebok you'll be the first one because nobody, nobody ever got a picture through the 1992 Olympics of him doing that. So he was able to get out of it squeaky clean with his Nike loyalty intact. Interesting. Did not know that. Uh, should we talk a little bit about uh, total football, sir? You seem like you had a certain amount of knowledge on that point. Uh, I don't know anything about that point other than the fact that uh, it had already existed. Uh, I, I looked it up a little bit. It is credited to the Dutch club Ajax, Netherlands national football, back in the 1970s. But there are signs that it was in existence well before then, even going back in terms of the 1930s with English coaches in, the, in Austria teaching people about uh, certain various similar things. Like you said, it is not as popular right now, uh, despite the fact that during the early 70s when, a when Ajax was using it, it was not just imminently successful, it was like, world-changing successful in terms of the, of how well they did with it. Like, they were two seasons in a row perfect, not a single loss at home. Hmm. Win, winning nonstop, like 46 and friggin' zero. One, the next, uh, another season down the line, only one loss the entire season, winning four national titles, international titles. It was an imminently incredibly successful until people learned how to play against it. So it had it kind of like... People had fiddled around with it for, for years. It had its utter moment in the sun of where it was imminently successful with Ajax. And then people consciously built their strategies around countering Ajax when they would use it. And it rapidly started to fade away. It's still being fiddled with by various teams, particularly FC Barcelona and the Spanish national team in the early 2000s, as various similar kinds of concepts of constant movement, of, for, of forming, you know, Little units for players to interact with, but always moving different between them. But it really, since that one brief, just utter foray of success in the 70s, it really hasn't been a dominant strategy since, which could very well set up Ted and Richmond, just given the fact that it's really not as much in the public consciousness as it used to be. Interesting. Uh, so, how about this? Bob Marley's Three Little Birds. How did that become sung at the Ajax? Ajax, Ajax, Ajax games. Tell me, sir. Well, it actually stems from 2008 in a preseason game between Ajax Amsterdam and Cardiff City in Cardiff, Wales. So they're in Cardiff. They're not in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. The game ended in a 0-0 tie. 
but the traveling Ajax fans were asked to remain inside the stadium at the away end after the game was over. Cardiff's then in-stadium announcer, Ali Yassin, was asked to entertain the Ajax fans who had huddled up in the away portion, the away side of the field. And rather impulsively, he decided to sing Bob Marley's iconic Three Little Birds. The Ajax fans sang along with him, enjoyed the moment, brought it back home to Amsterdam, and now at Johan Cruyff Arena, every game, they, they, they sing Three Little Birds by Bob Marley. And it actually fits pretty well because if you go to Amsterdam, you know, weed was legal there well before it started becoming legal in other parts of the world. And uh, you'll see a lot illegal? of. I'm not. I don't. I actually. I don't know the. I don't know that. But I do know this, it's been legal there for a long time. There's a big Rastafarian culture there. A lot of the coffee coffee shops, in quotes, is where you buy marijuana. Sure. Uh, have a Rastafarian sort of motif and theme to them. So it kind of fits with with the vibe of the city, where they're very into the Rastafarian stuff. Bob Marley's played a lot. So there you go. That's why the Isaac fans play Bob Marley's Three Little Birds. Yeah, I've heard a joke about coffee shops before, but where do you buy pot in Amsterdam? Coffee shops. Where do you buy coffee? Everywhere else. Yeah, it's like, I think there's specific phrasing for it that they teach you. It's like, when it's called a coffee shop, that means marijuana. When it's called, like, cafe, you could actually get a coffee. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in reference to what Jamie pointed out earlier, he's 100% correct. I just found this delightful that the word Amsterdam comes from... Amstel, which means watery area, like around a river, riverbank, that kind of thing, that kind of Dutch delta, just nonstop flooding. And dam, with the dam being built back in the uh, late 13th century. They combine the words together and you've got the Amstel Dam, Amsterdam. They've already been occupied for long than, long before then, but the city really, as he said, really only comes about from about that 13th century period, which or 12th, 13th century period, which I find fascinating that Jamie's like, oh my God, that's so old. When he lives in London, which still has freaking Roman walls from what was called Londinium, but maybe, maybe Jamie has blind spots when it comes to history. Who knows? We're being impressed with all the various knowledge that he has. One of the main claims to fame, though, for the city now, and this is one that imminently frustrates the people that live there, is that it is a city of, I was kind of surprised by this, 920,000 residents. I would have assumed it was more. Part of the reason I would have assumed it was more is that in 2019, it had more than 21 million overnight visitors. It has become a town which exists more as a tourist destination than it becomes as a place to live. It's over, it's outpriced people's ability to live there. It is yeah. filled to the brim like a city like Venice is, which whenever I've been to Italy, I first time I ever went to Italy, I went to Venice, and I will never be back it again because it is a city that doesn't exist outside of being a tourist destination now. Seems locals yeah. in Amsterdam are very worried about Amsterdam going along the same path, and I share and see their concerns hope it's able to maintain some ability for people to actually live there rather than being nothing more than say like a mountain town ski resort in terms of what that's now become as a city yeah some cities are becoming like municipal versions of an airbnb like it's nothing but a place for like if you go to some like like beach towns yes you know you you, there may be seventy-five thousand people in that town that evening and you look up and there's like maybe a thousand people who live there year mm-hmm. round, sometimes less than that. Something in the Northeast part of North Carolina in the outer banks. This is a thing. Matter of fact, there's a town there called Avon that I believe can get up over about 50,000 people when, when everybody's packed into the cottages and there's less than a thousand people, less than a thousand people who live there year round. 
in, in the actual town, which is interesting. Uh, okay, Tex Winter. Tex Winter invented the triangle offense in basketball. He is He was the assistant coach. Uh, forever in perpetuity, he was the beard to Ted Lasso oh. of of Phil Jackson. So he he was always the assistant coach of Phil Jackson. He never played professional ball. His coaching career uh, started in Kansas State, Marquette. He started in the college ranks, and then he moved his way up to be the assistant coach for the Chicago Bulls, which he was from 1985 and Phil uh, even before Phil Jackson got there. Uh, all the way through 1999, and then in 1999 he left with Phil Jackson to go to the Los Angeles Lakers, and he stayed there till 2004. He won nine total championships, six with the Bulls, three with the Lakers, just like Phil did. And uh, he was it, he was he was treated by Phil with more respect than most assistant coaches are treated, and it really does remind me. It's interesting they brought Tex Winter up because it really does remind me of the beard. Ted relationship because Phil was responsible for teaching players yoga, teaching them to meditate, talking to them about controlling their emotions, being connected as a group, the concept of karma and what that means. Like he would teach these things and then he would leave and go to his, go like have a beer and a cigarette in his fucking office and Tex would come in and go, okay guys, here's the game plan. It was very much like beard and Ted. Um, Phil, Phil was not an X's and O's guy. He knew he he roughly knew the triangle offense, but he didn't. He wasn't the one to teach it. Tex was the one that got him out there and explained, you know, how to do the specific movements, how to flow, etc. Triangle offense really fell out of favor once Tex left the league. Um, it is not something that's used all that much anymore. Phil tried to bring it back to the New York Knicks in the the 2010s, and it failed miserably. Now basketball. I sort of moved on from that constant motion um, offense of the triangle, which which actually kind of shortens the court a little bit. And they they take they typically will take four guys, space them out, one ball handler who will drive and kick, and a lot of three pointers are being shot at the NBA nowadays. So that it's now moved from the triangle has was very much in vogue in the '90s to what you see mostly now in the NBA is a lot of motion offense and drive and kick three pointers. Interesting. Can I, can I tell you a little bit about windmills, sir? Please do. Uh, I would have lost money on this, but windmills are apparently a relatively new invention in human history. I felt like these would be like aqueducts, which have been around for, you know, literally thousands of years. But we mm. actually don't have much evidence that windmills existed before, like, you know, the ninth century. Windmill can be invented. Triangle? Hmm. Tri- would you say triangle is more discovered rather than invented? Even that's hard. Realized. Because it's like... Realized. Uh, like concept, realized conceptualized how about that yeah there you go Pla- placed importance upon yes assigned value uh well windmills were assigned value in terms people have been pondering windmills or at least wind power devices for as long as we have writing systems to really take them into account the romans and roman egypt were pondering windmills and were even describing windmills as powering various objects or wind turbines there's several possible examples in ancient china and india of wind-powered devices working, but in terms of like a windmill that someone would recognize, like a wind turbine that is being blown about so as to power like a significant object, those appear to exist for the first time circa about, you know, the 9th, 10th century in Persia. Now, notably though, those were more like, you know, have you ever seen like a water wheel in terms of like, you know, the forces going directly into it and spinning it that kind of way? 
like on a riverboat, like a casino riverboat. Very much along that same kind of way, yes, with all of the yeah. bike bells in the background going on. That's how the original Persian um, windmills worked, of where like the wind would go directly into it. They're called horizontal windmills in terms of that in terms of that kind of flow. Those were used for many years throughout the Arab world. They passed into Europe in terms of that style. But like the modern, more the picture we have of you know modern Dutch windmills, really, as far as we can tell, didn't exist, weren't really pondered, weren't really developed until like you know the 1200s AD, like you know the medieval period when these kind of windmills started to develop. Um, like, well, 12th century, late late late, late 12th century. They were an incredible revolution when they were developed because they were able to use renewable resources for the process of, of many different activities in terms of helping develop industry. and became a key aspect in terms of Northern Europe's early forays into what eventually became, you know, a proper medieval industrial revolution before the more modern one developed in the years afterwards. But I was legitimately surprised. I would have assumed that windmills have been with us from time immemorial, but they're a relatively recent thing. Hence, Roy's utter surprise that they actually exist. Okay, I think that's about it. I think we're leaving one on the table, though. Do you do you have it? Do you What'd have you Chet Baker? I have a little bit about Chet Baker. If you can tell us more, all I was going to say, all I was going to say, what you going to say? Prince of Cool. Prince of Cool. Prince of Cool. It's a hell of a it's fucking for Prince of Cool. That's I think that's all I have to say about Chet Baker. I was kind of surprised at how long of a career Chet Baker had. Of where I I knew that he died in the '80s, and I kind of assumed that you had that he had that kind of career in that period and died relatively young. That guy was around for like 60 years. He kind of had various careers, ups and downs and resurgences. Well, about At 40, times associated yeah. with, well, yeah, he was alive for 60 years. Um, but various ups and downs driven by, sadly, various periods of drug addiction and incarceration. But he, had a, he was having a career resurgence around the period, sadly, of his death. Yeah, he was a drug addict at a time where it was a difficult time to be a drug addict. I mean, it's never, never easy, but like it was particularly harder... Back then, because they were they were they were putting him in jail for using drugs. Yes, it wasn't for like stealing, you know, stealing anything or, or selling. No it. associated. It was just, he crime. just had it. He just Possession. had it on him, and he was a drug addict. Therefore, he just they just kept throwing him in jail, which which just simply does not work to stop people from doing drugs. Uh, yeah, Chet Baker, Prince of Cool. If you haven't heard his stuff, I would I would say listen to it. I did not know he died this way. That's a pretty interesting thing. Um, I did learn that what they displayed in the show mm -hmm. uh, does exist that, in Amsterdam. You can go and black statue thing. Yeah. And the window, the, the people who have that, particularly that apartment generally keep a picture of Chet Baker on the window that he fell out of. So they, mm. you can kind of see the spot. That's pretty cool. Well, I think, I think that wraps. I, I think we may have actually hit 10 this time around. 10 um, on the nose. All right. Let's talk about train wrecks of the episode. I'm curious of your thoughts, sir. As you said, everyone kind of went through like character growth, development, moving along, and there have been the respective plot lines all season. Who was a train wreck in light of all of this, you know, forward momentum to their stories? I don't have one. Every the whole point of the episode is to show everyone getting where they need to go, learning the individual lesson that each of them needed to learn. Mm-hmm. Everybody's learning different lessons. They all learning it in different ways. But the magic that is Amsterdam is teaching everybody all of these lessons. Nobody was a complete train wreck. I think you could go with somebody like Danny for yet again being a cartoonish character that just says nothing but silly stuff. I think you could go um, 
with any of the guys who were involved in the pillow fight just because it's sort of weird and lame. But nobody was outright negative this episode. No. I didn't see it anyway. Everyone ended up better than from where they started. Everyone grew. Hey, they developed new pathways in their brain, be it from hallucinogens or just positive life experiences throughout the whole evening. I mean, all you can really say is just focus on like individual little beats. Like, hey, how about we throw a nod to the to our Dutch audience and say Rebecca not recognizing the bike lane and getting just utterly cartwheeled off that bridge? She almost literally had a train wreck in terms of that in terms of that moment. That work for you? That's probably pretty good. I, I yeah, I, I felt like when she fell, that could have killed somebody. Like she could have easily hit good? her head on it. Not great. Uh, okay, I think that's train wreck the episode. Ted's life lessons of the episode. What can you tell us, sir? Go to Amsterdam. Go to Amsterdam. Go to Amsterdam. And I think that I think the general lesson of the episode, which they they tell over and over and over again, is give yourself up to mm-hmm. chance, to the universe, to the thing that's in front of you. Whatever you have this idea of like, my, my, my night will be good if we do X, Y, Z. That's usually, that's usually a setup for failure. If you let yourself flow with the evening, go where the universe is sending you. I think this is what the show is trying to say. Yeah. Um, you'll, you, you know, maybe you can learn some very important lessons and you can end up in some really interesting situations and stories. I mean, I, I pretty much everybody except for the pillow fight guys, pretty much everybody's got a great story from this evening. They all leave. Will might have a heck of a story. We don't know. Uh, so I would say, I'd say a fair one is give yourself up to when you have free time, of course, only when you have free time. Of course, of course, of course. Um, if somebody makes a suggestion, maybe be open-minded. If it's, Hey, let's go do this. You weren't necessarily planning on it. Go see where the night leads. A lot of times you can end up having great memory or you can learn a lesson yourself. Maybe not as literally as the show does it. The show is a universe where everyone is perfectly safe. Just, you know, going off with random Dutchmen that pull you out of canals or you think getting high and wandering the streets alone on your first trip. Maybe don't do those things in those exact way, but the spirit and the theme and the philosophy is, is a good one to keep at heart. Right. Maybe, maybe keep, maybe that, maybe the idea of, Life can be enriched by a certain measure of spontaneity. It doesn't have to be all the time. It doesn't have to be 100% spontaneity, but like introducing some of that in life can be enriching. And I think that's what these characters got in this very insular, isolated episode. What was that Dutch word again, sir? Oh, I don't know. What was it? I've forgotten it. I've said it a million times. (laughs) You did it so well throughout the episode. Yeah. Baby, don't worry. That'll do. About a thing. Same philosophy. Gazellig. There we go. Gazellig. Thank yeah, you, sir. Absolutely. Okay. Anything else we should cover this episode? No, I mean, it's an episode that I, I get more fond of it the more the more I talk about it and the more I think about it. I think it still had some structural things that are always going to annoy me, Just, but they, they are becoming all the more common in Ted Lasso, so I'm getting used to them. It's clear to me that it's a show that is well done. It's well sure. produced. It's well written. It's well acted. And when they decided to do this type of show... I think they did a really good job with it, uh, or did this type of episode. I think they did a really good job with it. I'm glad we could move you a little bit. I knew that when the episode length got announced, you were you started <laughs> from a not good already. you started from a not good place. Uh, but it looks like maybe you didn't hate it. I do legitimately miss 30 minute Ted Ted Lasso episodes. It was fun. It was breezy. I didn't feel like I was committing an evening to the subject of just that. 
That is a long time ago now. I think you noted early in this season that we should expect hour-long Ted Lasso episodes. I'm willing to bet we're going to see more of those than the alternative for the rest of the season. I think that's the world of Ted Lasso now. More Lasso all the time. I think that we can expect longer episodes. I, I think that literally going over an hour might be an anomaly. I would be surprised if there's there's more than one more episode that goes literally over an hour like this one did. Do you think we will get another insular kind of made-for-TV movie style of Ted Lasso before this season is done? Or was this the one-off? That's a good question. Uh, maybe one more. Maybe they do 10. Like they, they, Maybe that's Keep the new tradition. thing. Is they, do, they do 10 sort of isolated and then two that what? are kind of all over the place. With this being the Beard After Dark very much episode, there's a lot of similarities between this and Beard After Dark, including the you know, psychedelic kind of moment. Can we expect a holiday episode again? All right. Let's say we get it. What would which, be the holiday, holiday? you want? What holiday do you want? Uh, well, we can't do Christmas again. Uh, nope. and they, in, in the, they're in the UK, so unless Ted tries to introduce them to Thanksgiving, I don't think that one's as uh, likely to really to go down. Ah, uh, interesting. What would, what would work with the themes they're going through this? I think Easter would be too on the nose. I don't know. I'm not really sure what holiday they can really fit into the themes they're going for here. I think a New Year's would be good uh, and follow everybody through a New Year's night. That could work. Maybe, maybe, maybe you have a team-sponsored party and you follow everybody through the course of this party or something like that. That could work. I mean, it has to be something really universal, right? That's how these holiday episodes work. So something like New Year's where everybody kind of gets the gist of what, what's going on here pretty quickly. I think that would work okay. But yeah, maybe one more isolated episode. I don't, I don't think we're going to get over an hour. I hope we don't because I, I did enjoy this episode. I really liked it. But if it's an hour, 10 hour, 15 every week, that that's a l- awful lot of show. That's even more than, than your standard dramas. Uh, it might be too much for me. I'm with you on that. I mean, if, if, we're, if, we're, if we're looking at like a consistent hour, 20 hour, 30, I'm budgeting it in the evening to make that happen in terms of, in terms of experience rather than the, the usual comedy foray I've come to hope for and expect. Okay. Anything else you want to talk about this episode before we wrap up? No, no, I'm, I'm, I, with how important this was in terms of moving the characters forward, I think it op- it offers a lot of opportunities about where the next episode can go. I'm, but I'm kind of inclined to think with how the show operates that we're going to spend a lot more time with Keeley next episode. So you know, you'll get you'll get your desire in that regard, and I'll be curious to see where they go with it. I do think the writers have checked the box, and I think now we're going to get Rebecca dating. I think. I think this is what this is the thing that will get her back into. She's going to be freely dating, happy to date. I know she was doing some dating before, but I'm talking about like she'll be into it. She'll be enjoying it. She'll be living her life and having a good time. I think this is this will be the triggering event to sort of change the trajectory of her romantic life. If she randomly matches with the Dutchman on on the various social apps, how would you feel? Grown. Yeah, it's a picture of that reaction out of you now. Okay, thanks everybody for listening. A lot of fun, a lot of very different episode. We covered it in two hours. It was more than an hour long itself, so we we were able to get through, make some make some time here on the episode. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back with you next week to review the next episode of season three of Ted Lasso, presumably the last season. So we're probably going to have some some plot movement coming in the next few weeks, folks. Look forward to talking about it with you, Spencer. Look forward to talking about it with all of you. Hope everybody has a great week. See ya. Baby, don't worry.